Hello and welcome to Unabashed Book Snobbery, the podcast where we gush about George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire and make a fuss about its rotten adaptation, Game of Thrones. This is where being a book snob is a good thing. My name is Kylie, and here with me is Julia. Good evening, everyone. Or morning, or whenever it is you are listening to us. No, only only my reality is relevant. Well, that's rude. (laughs) I personally listen to podcasts on my way to work, so I would say good morning, but whatever. Ah, Forget it. (laughs) Um, Today, as season six draws closer, our desire to talk about Game of Thrones dies even more. Season six, I don't even know I'm going to get around to editing stuff, so season six might even be out. Already. Yeah, that's true, know. but I don't think our desire to deal with it in any way will increase. No, and one of the the oft-quoted or cited apologist defenses, by the way, of, mm-hmm. of season five, and I think assuming season six a little bit, is that well, it's not really D&D's fault that they had to make shit up because the books Martin wrote for them were just not cinematic and clearly he was writing the books for them for an adaptation. Yeah, obviously. Um and it's just kind of this this accepted mm-hmm. dialogue in the fandom that George R. R. Martin wrote three really good books and then kind of took a shit over the last two. Yeah. That's- Especially Feast for Crows. We really don't like a Feast for Crows. Because or- they're bloated and boring and nothing happens. nothing happens. Yeah. And like, I don't want to hear about Brienne asking for a maid of three and ten anymore. Uh, yeah. Fair of faith. What was it? Yeah. What's the full quote? You probably know it. It's, I'm, I'm looking for a, a maiden of three and ten. She's fair of face with auburn hair. Yeah, whatever. Blue eyes and auburn anyway. hair. Uh-huh. It doesn't matter. The, the thing is, Joy and I feel very, very strongly about the last two books mm-hmm. of A Song of Ice and Fire, A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. Actually, I just read them as one book. I think yep. you do too. We call it Feast Dance. Yeah, Feast Dance. Um, I tend to read by it, POV, so. Yeah, I don't. I do read in chronological order, but, um, yeah, what, uh, we're gonna link the boiled leather uh, they did a combined. Yeah, he, he has a combined reading order and like a newbie combined order, so there aren't like spoilers and things like that. So he has several combined reading orders. Yeah, I don't recommend the newbie one. I think read it as it was yeah. intended, but um, I don't recommend his show apologism either. But that's a different matter. Well, I, yeah, uh, I'm, con- <laughs> I'm just confused by that. Yeah, like <laughs> there are some people who are just like you. You don't understand why they're still defending the show. Yeah, because <laughs> they seem to get it when they talk about the books. Or, like, you know, yeah. in general. And then they start talking about the show, and you're like, um... We are speaking a different language, yeah. sir. This is a tortured introduction. We like his combined reading list. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we recommend it. We will link it. Um, But the thing about Feast Dance is that, it, you know, actually, I'd be lying if I said I didn't understand the criticisms. Mm. My my first time through Feast for Crows, it really dragged for me. I didn't, you know, I didn't dislike it, but I certainly didn't enjoy it the way I do now. Yeah. Where, at this point... At this point, if I'm going to reread something, it's almost definitely from Feast Dance. That, yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, there are parts of the other books that I do enjoy reading a great deal. Um, 
like some Ned chapters in a Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. I really enjoy rereading. And uh anything with Oberyn in it is <laughs> Storm of Swords. I could re- I could reread the shit out of that chapter where he meets them on the road. Where Tyrion Truthfully, meets them on the road. Anything oh. King's Landing I could reread yeah. at any point. Yeah, especially if it's a Sansa chapter because Tyrion sometimes pisses me off. Not usually, but sometimes I'm just like, Oh my god, Tyrion, stop it. But but also in terms of character analysis and, mm-hmm. and speculation and anything that you might want to do, any theory crafting, I mean, Julie and I love speculating, so mm-hmm. we do this all the time. No, it, it's just, you know, Feast Dance is more current. It's kind of what you have to base on to, like, you know, get yeah. a feel for it. It has characters that the other ones don't. Absolutely. And then the thing about Feast Dance, too, is that I would say more than any, more than the first three books, they re- really reward rereads. Oh, definitely. I mean, like, uh, I've heard it said that, like, it's in A Storm of Swords where, like, the themes and shit really, really come to the fore, especially um, with the patriarchy and things like that. I mean, like, it's not like it's not addressed in the first two books, but by A Storm of Swords, like, you really can see that it's it's a very conscious effort on the author's part to discuss these things very in-depth. And then in Feast Dance, that's, like... That's it. Yeah, you can tell it's it's the main purpose that the author has right now is to talk about these themes. The thing about quote unquote nothing happens, yeah, the action slows. For it for sure it slows. Yeah, it does. I mean the action. I read what one of my first pieces actually on fandom following was talking about like uh genre and expectation. We'll link that. Yeah, maybe we'll link that, of course. Uh and um well, the thing is that, like, this series is officially in the fantasy genre, right? Correct. So people have the expectation that it will be a plot-driven book. Because genre, quote-unquote, is plot-driven. But literary fiction is expected to be, like, thematically and characterly, characterally driven, right? Exactly, yeah. Right. So what really happened in between... uh the storm like things of, fall apart, right? Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of those. Like you know, it's, it's the books you read in high school. Yeah, it's just like like Atonement. Like you can you could like do a detailed plot synopsis of Atonement on like a post it, because not much actually happens. Happens. Yes. But, like the, the right. point of the book isn't for shit to happen. The point of the book is like you know to talk about the characters and the themes. Right? Yes, correct. Um, uh, and like, like somewhere uh, between, like I, I think a storm source is really very transitional, even though like. A lot of shit happens in A Storm of Swords. Almost a ridiculous amount yeah. happens, to be honest. But, like, basically, there was a point where, like, this became, like, a fantasy novel with high literary val- uh, merits, and it turned into a literary novel that happens to be in a fantasy setting. Correct. And that happened sometime between A Clash of Kings and uh, Feast for Crows. <laughs> it did. It happened. It happened during Gap Scrap, is what happened. Probably. Um, should we explain what Gap Scrap is in case anybody lives under a rock? Um, yeah. So, you know, George R. R. Martin has had a very evolving idea of what a, a Song of Ice and Fire is going to look like. Originally, originally, mm-hmm. he was going to be a trilogy, but then after he wrote the first, yeah, the three first books, volume was supposed to end with the Red Wedding. But like, obviously, you know, you sit down to write it. This world just keeps growing and growing, and I think in ways that you know, taking him in directions he necessarily wasn't expecting. Yeah, which is a thing that happens when you write. Absolutely. He gets new ideas. He gets excited about it. I'm happy yeah. to let him go. But what he was originally planning on doing was that he's like, okay, I'm going to write a s- series of two trilogies. Um, well, it would, be, it would be the same thing, but it would be like th- uh, two sets of three. Mm-hmm. And there would be a five-year gap in between the first three and the second three. So the first three Storm of Swords and then 
whatever was supposed to come next, A Song of Ice and Fire 4, quote-unquote, would take place five years after the fact. Yeah, that was the gap. The problem that he found was that he was having to go back in yeah. and fill well, in there, there were several. Detail. There were several problems. Like One of them was that, like, yes. it was, like, all flashbacks. Yes. And another one was, like, just, like, he couldn't figure out, a, like, a reason for just, like, this war to be, like, completely halted for five years and, like... The, and the others are, like, not up to anything for five years suddenly. Yeah, he was saying it was just, like, a, a lack of action in some, and then too much, like, that just had to be mm-hmm. retold. So he finally was like, fuck it, I'm not going to do this gap, and I'm not going to, I'm going to scrap the gap. Yeah. Gap scrap. And I'm going to do seven books. Yeah, and, the, and maybe, they're... Maybe eight. <laughs> yeah, so, like, a lot of people kind of, um, there's some evidence for this. It's probably not entirely true, but it's probably, like, at least partially true that Feast Dance is the, it's the gap. Right? Yeah. It's not the worst theory mm-hmm. in the world. I mean, there are some things, there are some things you can kind of tell, like, um, in the Dornish, in the Dornish theater, you can tell definitely Feast Dance is supposed to be the gap. Absolutely. <laughs> right. I would also say, based on some sample chapters released, you can tell that they were supposed to be after the gap. Yeah, like Mercy, for example, definitely supposed to be after the gap. And Elaine, I would say. Yeah. But, like, yeah. you can tell that Mercy was written for an older character. I'm sorry. Um, eventually, we'll do an episode on Mercy. Yeah, we Because really it deserves its own episode. Yeah, we do. I wonder what the fuck Bran's post-gap chapter was going to be like. Well, I'm sure, like, he was just supposed to, like, appear at the cave right after the gap. Okay. And I, I don't, like, what what was the plan for Cersei? Because they kind of, he hangs a lampshade on this in A Feast for Crows at one point where he talks about, Littlefinger talks about how he expected Cersei to take a lot longer to fuck everything up. Right? So, yeah. the, so the gap was supposed to be the five years where she completely fucks up. Yeah. Instead of, like, the six months <laughs> that she took to run the entire Seven Kingdoms into the ground. <laughs> yeah. There's some, there's some interesting things he might have done. Mm-hmm. But why were we talking about gap scrap? I like talking about it. I'm happy to talk about it. Because it's important to understanding Feast Dance. And I think the, so, too. And the criticisms of it, I think. Yeah, and we're here to ignore the criticisms. And mm-hmm. Well, not ignore just... Yeah, okay. Let's ignore them. <laughs> I mean, we can bring them up, I guess, in the context. Mm-hmm. But we're j- basically, we're here to counter any yeah. criticisms. Because we- I think, like, it's fair to say, like, Feast Dance, treating it as one book, is not only our favorite Song of Ice and Fire book, it's probably, like, both of our favorite book, period. Correct. Yeah. So. There's, there's a reason I keep rereading it instead of reading all the other shit I want to read. I'm reading it instead of reading my gothic horror that I'm actually reading now. Ugh. Your actual gothic horror, because I, I, like, thought it'd be really funny for her to read a gothic horror, but then it turned out to be twice as long as I thought it was. <sighs> Three times as long. I've, oh, I'm sorry. I feel really bad about this. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get a bit out of it, don't worry. At the same time, it's hilarious because it's also revenge fic. <laughs> yeah, like, like it's it's a Regency revenge porn flick. Like, a woman wrote it because she was mad at her lover. I love everything about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Feast So, we really like this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, we're going to defend it. Um, And, you know... I think our hope of making this podcast is that you might not necessarily find it super exciting, but we're going to try and talk about like the themes and how, how much effort went into making such a a really cohesive novel Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. 
And yeah, just- it's, it's funny because people talk about how, like, it becomes geographically scattered and, like, the characters have less to do with each other, like, physically, I suppose, and in a... And there's these new characters and who yeah. are they? But thematically, it is remarkably cohesive. Incredibly so. In fact... Yeah, like, we were listing themes, like, okay, which characters touch on this theme? And we just uh, ended up listing all the characters. So... Yeah. <laughs> Even characters we kind of forgot about were like, John Con, yeah. Right, him! <laughs> he fits in here. John Con's Red Spears is not going to be happy with us <laughs> forgetting John Con. We would never forget John Con. For very long. For very long, because then we'd be like, wait, what's Ariane up to now? <laughs> We're the worst. We are. <laughs> Speaking of characters, which characters do we have? Okay, so there's prologue and epilogue characters, mm-hmm. so we can go over who those are if you want. The Feast for Crows prologue is told for, through the eyes of Pate. Yeah, who's kind of just this extremely pathetic young man. Um, he's a moop. Yeah, he's something. I don't know. He, he's 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 studying at the Citadel. You get and the he's really he, bad at it. Yeah, he's not the smartest, so, like, he's kind of, like, not doing well in his college courses. Mm-hmm. He's got a crush on, like, the the local tavern owner's daughter, and... Yeah, and he has this brilliant plan to, like, buy her hymen, and then that will mean that they will be together forever. Well, to be fair, the dad was selling it. Her, her mom? Her mom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her mom was selling the hymen. Yes. So, but he doesn't have any money, so he's, like, trying to get money so he so can buy he's saving her hymen. Up. Yeah. No, but he thinks that this is like going to be like this grand romantic gesture. That's what that's so brilliant about it. Well, it's also really gross because it's like some of his classmates are like, "Haha, I'm going to buy her first. Yeah, yeah. And Sorella is one of them, but she doesn't want to buy any hymens, so she doesn't that's... want to buy any hymens. But she has all the girls hitting on her, so yeah. I'm fine. <laughs> um, okay, so let's y- talk about something other than Rosie's hymen. All right. Uh- <laughs> No, the, all, all, all the chapter is, it's just Pate, and then, we're not really doing recaps, I'm just trying to explain who Pate is. He's just a random boop at the Citadel, yeah. and he ends up getting killed by a faceless man at the end of the yeah, chapter. Yeah, uh, the, probably the same one who played Jake and Hagar. The description matches who Jake and turned into. So, we know that the Citadel is has something going down with the faceless so that's, men. That's yeah. the feast prologue, the dance prologue. And is there's no there, feast epilogue, right? There's, no. Yeah. And there's, uh, the dance prologue is Varamir Sixkins, mm-hmm, who's another despicable person, and he's a warg. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of learn a lot about warging from him. There, we again, yeah. we don't need to recap it. We, just, yeah, we a- get some world building about wildlings and things like that. It's it's actually pretty interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. But th- that's like the, it's important because probably because of the whole second life thing, right? Where like a warg can live, like mm-hmm. continue his existence some way in some way after his death within the animal that he works it's very much assumed the that, wolf that he works it, it's very much fandom assumed that this has to do with john mm-hmm. john's being stabbed at Eid, and his last word was ghosts or yeah. holly um i but uh rob's last word was uh great wind so you know but then great wind was beheaded i know but still doesn't have to be a very long second life he had a second life it was just a shitty one exactly it was involved being shot Oh my god! And then the epilogue of *The Dance with Dragons* is the wonderful, wonderful Kevin epilogue that I oh, yeah, that's so I good. adore. It's so it's it's I don't like Kevin very much. He's not a despicable person the way the uh, two prologue chapters are, the two prologue characters are, but he's not exactly you know the bee's knees in my opinion. But uh, <laughs> I really, really like this chapter. Yeah, 
And, of course, it ends with him getting shot by uh, Varys's little birds. Well, no, Varys shoots him, and then the little birds stab him. That's overkill. Wow. But not after Varys divulges his entire plan. Yeah, he did kind of have a Bond villain moment, didn't he? Or he was feeding someone else, yeah. Yeah, well, there's you can speculate on that. So those are the prologues and the epilogues. Um, in terms of us talking about them with themes, like, we can relate it, but our plan was more to focus on the characters. Mm-hmm. That... Like the the point of view characters, yeah. If that's okay, sure. <clears throat> all right. So then we have all of the point of view characters, kind of in ascending order of chapters. So coming in with one measly little chapter, but it's very interesting. So that's all right. Is Melisandre? Mm-hmm. And yeah, this was kind of like a surprise, right? Like very few people were spoiled on this that she would have Very a few. point of view catcher and and before this martin had gone on record saying she was the most misunderstood person in his books yeah and i don't think this chapter helped much no. i mean you do know that she's definitely a true believer uh you do know that her like the stuff she does is like 90 percent not magic but yes. then there's that 10 percent you get the um, feeling she's a lot older than she says she is yeah she makes him extremely like infuriatingly vague statements um she's like i need to remember to eat yeah i need to remember to sleep i think it's weird if i don't yeah yeah she doesn't need to eat or sleep apparently which is like somebody hmm uh, and uh she has a vision of of bran and or blood raven and she kind of identifies that as the great other and things like that so yeah it's she a very interesting super account. excited yeah when she has um like it's like tingles in her, yeah, yeah. Well, we we have like like we see her like having these visions that she's always talking about, and like how extremely vague they are, and how she kind of goes through the thought process of interpreting them. But she definitely is a true believer, and mm-hmm. she does believe Stannis is. And there's is definitely some actual magic going on. Yes, correct. Okay, coming in at two chapters, we have John Con, who John we Khan. didn't forget about. Yeah, but we see him quite a bit uh, through Tyrion's point of view too. We do. Yeah, so uh, his POV chapters are basically like the process of invading Westeros, of invading the Stormlands. Like, we meet the Golden Company, and then we go to Griffin's Roost. Those are his two chapters. And of course, he's kind of hiding a fatal condition. Mm-hmm. He's got the grayscale. Yeah, he does. And he's totally in love with Rhaegar Targaryen. <laughs> It's like Not bubbly subtly. levels right now, yeah. I like, I like, because Martin said, confirmed that he had a gay point of view character, and people were like, Hota? Mm. What? <laughs> what were you reading sorry yeah so um i know there's not much to say about john con he's very um we'll be bringing out hub when we talk about themes of course yeah but john con is kind of a normal he's i don't particularly like him that much he's he's fine i know we have at least like one person who probably listens to this podcast who won't be happy that i say this but like there's not much to john con like you know he has like experiences and, but, like, in terms of, like, his character, like, I don't know. Well, he's just not... He's just some guy. <laughs> you know? That's how I feel about him. He's just some guy. He's kind of like Kevin in a less interesting situation. Yeah, like, with and no I can't family. think of any, I can't think of any adjectives that go with him. <laughs> Red-haired. It, no, he's, he's like, I guess he's very, I don't want to say normative, but he's kind of just, like, he's very straightforward. He is. Yeah. A lot like Kevin in that way. Yes. Yeah. 
But yeah, I don't dislike him in any way. So it's not like I'm shitting on him. No, there's nothing wrong with him. <laughs> no, there's just it's kind of like you know you eat bread at restaurants before your food comes out, mm-hmm. and it's fine. Yeah, maybe some butter on it. That'd be egg on. Sure. <laughs> uh, don't read into the analogy. It wasn't very well thought out. No, I'm just hungry and I want bread. <laughs> All right, so the next person is uh, somebody who is not at all straightforward. Is that what you were going to say? <laughs> that is what I was going to say. You picked yeah. up my segue that I was mumbling. <laughs> and that is Sansa, but her name isn't Sansa anymore. It's Elaine, Elaine. not Baelish, Elaine Stone. Yeah. Um, and she only has three characters. Three characters. She only has three chapters in Feast Dance. And they're all in the Vale. And it's all about her trying to take on this new identity of Elaine Stone, yeah. while at the same time, Littlefinger's kind of spinning his webs to get Sansa Stark back in a position of power, like, to get, basically to get her Winterfell. Yeah, well, basically what we see is, like, Sansa taking over the Eyrie. Because, yeah, like, kind of. by the time it's time to leave, like, she's fucking in charge. Like, people are, like, the Maesters deferring to her. Everyone's, like, asking her, what should we do now? And, yeah. like, she's running that castle. She is. She really is. And she's, like, obviously, you know, like, Robin, uh, Robert's primary caretaker. Yeah, no, like, the maester is, like, asking her for permission to do stuff, right? Yeah. And she helps him across a bridge and stuff like yeah. that. Like, she yeah, bonds she... with Miranda, our fictional BFF. <laughs> yeah. It's good shit. Yeah. And yeah. There's, like, a lot of veil politics kind of in there, and she's kind of very intimately involved in it. Like, she's a very active observer. Um, but she is an observer to those. Yeah. But she's an act like, yes, she's an active observer, okay? That's important. It's an important distinction. I, I agree, but it is also important to note that she's observing yes. very clearly at the stage, though. Mm-hmm. But, like, um, like, Littlefinger is doing this whole, like, kind of mentor thing with her. Where they talk through everything after it happens, and he, like, you know, asks her kind of very Socratic kind of questions, and she puzzles everything out. Mm-hmm. He's also doing this other thing with her, where he's creeping on her. Yeah, he's, like, kind of very obviously grooming her. It's very disturbing. And she's just trying to navigate that. Yeah, I mean, she, like, she kind of, I don't know if she, like, knows, knows what's going on, but she's definitely made very, very uncomfortable by his behavior. Yeah. And she just thinks how, like, she really, wants people to stop with with all the creeping and all the like selling of her vagina there's one point where she's like yeah i really would just like leave but there's nowhere to go yeah and like when he's just like oh i'm gonna marry you off and she's just like she's not like angry or sad she's just kind of like exhausted by the idea she 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 starts to like get a little bit of a panic attack actually her throat starts to close a little and she's like i don't want this (laughs) but yeah all right uh also with three chapters is her little bro Bran. Um, he only has chapters in a dance, and she only has chapters in Feast. Yeah. But, yeah, Bran is, is traveling north of the wall uh, with his Coltans dude, and Coltans dude is weird. So, and like, the reeds. Yeah, and the reeds are there, and uh, Jojen's not doing well. But then the last chapter, they're in the cave, and he's, like, doing the whole lesson thing with Blood Raven, and it's awesome. It's one of my favorite chapters, actually. Um, where he's yeah. he's just like learning how to like you know use the weirwood network and he's skin changing into ravens and things like that and he's and Hodor yeah and Hodor like a lot um but like the whole thing like, like he 
he skin changes into a raven and he kind of like has an impression of of other people who have skin changed into that raven and things like that. And so he's learning kind of to tap into this kind of like reservoir of knowledge that is the weirwood trees, right? Yes. And then he goes to bed and has a dream about like basically the history of Winterfell and it's kind of it's kind of awesome. It's through the eyes of like one weirwood. Yeah. That's like flashing back in time. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty rad. Uh, but, you know, it's also a little difficult to look at his chapters as anything very beyond setup. Like, yeah, it, that's true. It, it really is set up. It, what happens in it is cool. Um, but, you know, when we start talking about themes and stuff, Bran might sometimes get left out a little bit. So yeah. we we'll try to consciously work him in. We do what we can. Yeah. Then after that, who do we have? Uh, yeah, the next three people are all in uh, dance, right? Yeah, just a dance and not a feast for crows. It, we, next we have, and all with four chapters. Next yeah. we have Barry the Scary. Yeah, Sir Barristan Selmy, who is now in Marine. He's the uh, Queen's Guard, I suppose, for Daenerys. And, and we get his point of views only after Danny has taken off, or do we get yeah. one? Yeah. No, we okay. get him only after Danny has taken off. So he's kind of now pri- the primary Marine point of view. To be perfectly honest, I can't believe there's four chapters of that, but. Yeah. That was surprising to me. Yeah, well, he he basically, like, stages a coup. Yeah, I guess it takes four chapters to do. Yeah, well, first he's, like, dealing with, like, uh, with his dar being in charge and everybody, yeah. like, kind of pushing him aside. And, like, he tells Quentin he's an idiot. And, uh, yeah. And then, yeah, yeah, he's, so then he stages a coup and that's one chapter. Mm-hmm. And then there's the chapter where he's, I guess there's two chapters there. The staging of the coup, because one there's one one chapter where he's thinking about staging the coup, and then the one where he does, and then the one after that where he's actually running the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's preparing for the Battle of Fire. Yep. And he thinks that he doesn't like uh, Garrus drink water. No, he doesn't <laughs> like fire. He likes mud. Yeah. No projections for him. Nope. He's perfectly objective. While we're talking about it, Quentin also has four chapters. Mm-hmm. He's also just in dance. And his chapters are very kind of geographically based. Like, there's one in Volantis, one on the road, and then, uh, and then there's this gap. There's this gap basically where Danny and Barry take over. Yeah. And then there's the chapters where he, he steals the dragons. Yeah, yeah oh, Quentin. Yeah, oh, Quince. We, we will do, a, we will do an episode about you. We did an entire reread of you. You deserve it. We we'll do it, and yeah. like thematically, definitely ties in in terms of his mm-hmm. actual plot, uh, deconstruction of a hero's journey kind of thing going on. We'll, yeah, we'll get into it. Yeah. Um, There's a lot to get into. There is he for four chapters that people are like, oh, he was totally unnecessary. There's a lot there, mm-hmm. but at the same, there's time... there's a lot of his material in other people's chapters too. Yes, exactly. Like it's he, does he justify it as his own point of view? Uh, I'm not upset he's in it. No. That was kind of the conclusion of our reread. That took us six weeks. <laughs> yeah, we're like, uh, it's fine. Yeah. It's very well written, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. No denying that. Um, also, at four chapters, then, the last one yeah. is Davos. And he's doing his little White Harbor. Yeah, well, first he, he's tour. at the sisters, right? Mm-hmm. And then he goes to White Harbor, and then we think he's dead. And if you read A Feast for Crows, like, you think he, there's a very good chance that he just died. Yeah, because that's what they tell the folks at King's Landing. Yeah. And then he's the dead man. He turns back later and Mm -hmm. kind of gets involved with this other, like, scheme and 
Yeah. And he's just really trying to secure support for Stannis and no one wants to give it to him because he's Stannis. But Davos has some cool stuff going on too. Mm -hmm. I'm actually really uh, rather fond of Davos' chapters. Yeah, he writes a very moving letter to his wife. Yeah. And he kind of struggles with like being a knight and well, we get to it. Yeah. Definitely personal, political. Oh, I love all of it. (laughs) Who's next? Uh, I believe next with three plus two chapters, meaning three in Feast, two in Dance, mm-hmm. is Arya Stark. She's uh, really not Arya, called Arya very much. She's not. I think she has one chapter that's called Arya in A Feast for Crows. Then after that, it's her persona headings. I could be wrong about yeah. that. And that's her in the House of Black and White. Uh, I feel like we just recorded her retrospective episode. <laughs> But it's much better in the books. Um, yeah, oh, God, yeah. But yeah, like, basically, like, like the, what I just said, how, like, every chapter is a different persona of hers. I think that's very important, too, because, like, it's kind of like a gradual loss. In case you, in case you missed that identity as a theme, mm-hmm. Arya's chapters bash you over the head with this. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't have anything else to say after that. Yeah. I mean, like, I suppose we can get into, like, what actually happened, but it's just, like, it's just her learning, um, you know, and there's a lot, there's a lot of, like, really interesting backstory in there, and, I don't know, I really like, her chapters are, like, they're kind of basically five, like, short stories, really. Yeah, that's fair to say, they're very atmospheric, too, mm-hmm. it's very much about Yeah, Robos. like, um, the blind girl, I think, is the most lyrical chapter in the series. I like it. <laughs> It's one of my top three, probably. I wonder what number one is. Oh, I wonder. Get <laughs> <laughs> there. Um, no, yeah, I no. I was I was thinking because we talk about her chapters in that retrospective episode too, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's just very her going through her training while also we're getting so much about the city. Yeah, and a, a lot about like her too. Mm-hmm. She's. You know, she's she's a little kid. She's very, like, kind of developing her own kind of, you know, intellect. We'll get to it. Yeah, I can't say enough good things about those chapters. Speaking of chapters, we can't say enough good things about. Sam. Oh, Samwell. Sam Tarly. Yeah. Uh, he's on a voyage. He's on a boat. He's he on... starts off at the wall, and we yeah. get, actually, the same chapter that we got with John. Well, the, the other way around. Later. Yeah. So yeah. First it's Sam, then it's John. Yeah, so Sam's only in uh, a dance of drag or uh, for crows, and then John's only in a dance of dragons. But they share a scene together that, like, it was told is retold from both their perspectives, which is interesting. The minor differences are interesting too. And uh, yeah, then he gets put on a boat, and he's told that he has to go become a maester at Old Town, and he also has to take Aemon Targaryen with him. Yeah, and um, Gilly. But, and Gilly, yeah, just and quote unquote Gilly's baby. Yeah. Because John's just trying to get as much king's blood away from the wall as possible. <laughs> yeah. Which is not a bad idea. Uh, Even though he forgot are- about himself. Oh my gosh, the awkward. Oh, it takes one to no one. Uh, yeah, exactly. He also gives Sam a really helpful bard, Darren. <laughs> he added so much. Who is like, going to help them. Yeah, he just spends recruit. like all the time being an asshole and then he deserts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so basically, it's just Sam trying to get them the fuck to Old Town, and Aemon yeah. is like dying, and Gilly is like grieving because she had a, she her baby was swapped on her, and 
it's him learning, it's him just being fucking brave and strong the whole way through, but then, like, he's, ugh. He's Sam. He's Sam. Yeah. And then he ends up at the Citadel, and he accidentally just, like, pours his heart out to Sarella. <laughs> yeah, and then he, ends like, ends up in, like, this, like, one of those, like, really scary college groups. Yeah, she's you know, like, I have We're, like, perfect- planning a communist revolution or something like that. Every college yeah, has them. Yeah, she, she, and she's like, I have the best extracurricular for you. Yeah. <laughs> it may or may not be a cult. Oh, Sorella. <laughs> <laughs> While we're speaking of Sorella, mm-hmm. with another, also five chapters, yeah. our, we call it the Dornish scene, I guess it's not Quentin. Yeah. It's the Dornish theater, like, in Dorn. Yeah, so there's Aryan who has two chapters. Uh, Arya Hota has two chapters. And Arisokart has a chapter. Yeah, so. This is our uh, favorite. <laughs> personal, political, study issues. Can we, like, we can't. Yeah, we're, like, trying not to talk about it too much. But, um, yeah, if you've, if you've listened to us favorite, like, five minutes together, you know this, that this is our favorite. It's okay. Yeah, so the, as for stuff that's happening, it's kind of basically the aftermath of Oberyn's death and trying to- And 14 years of fuckery. Yeah, like 17 <laughs> at this point. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, so it's the aftermath of both, really both, uh, Oberyn and Joffrey's death and just how this is playing out politically and there's a lot of personal stuff in there and, uh, it ends kind of when the, when Cersei finally sends Gregor Clegane's head down to Dorne, and the Dornish kind of, um, like, ostensibly. Yeah, well, they ostensibly kind of make peace with the Iron Throne. That's very important. And, but then at the same time, like, more or less in the same breath, they're like, so, yeah. <laughs> Which, ostensibly, has been Dorne, what Dorne has been doing this entire time anyway. Yeah. But just. Not as successful as when his daughter finally is on his team. Yeah, uh, well, imagine uh, that. Hmm. No, but like, yeah, this does okay. this this does seem to be like because for that seven year seventeen year period, like the kind of the situation was kind of like let's not talk about it. You know, it was kind of yeah. like you know American Cuban relations, <laughs> you know? and things are at a boiling point right. Yeah, things are at a boiling point right now, largely because of the War of Five Kings and how ravaged Westeros is. Mm-hmm. And all the changes going on with, like, you know, Targaryen movement and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, like, it's related to a lot of things that, that's going on, but it's also kind of its own thing because, like, the, uh... It's but, uncontained family drama. Yeah, no, but, like, but like the political stuff is definitely there, but it's it's always kind of at the periphery, and it's, it's more of an excuse. So, Yeah. Even if people hyper focus on it. Anyway, mm-hmm. let's talk about another <laughs> plot line that we're really fond of, actually. Yes. Uh, that is Theon's. And he's only in A Dance with Dragons. He's actually been missing for two books at this point. But uh, he has seven chapters. Yeah. And, uh. They're wonderful. He's, he, I mean, he starts out at the Dreadfort and then they go to Winterfell. Is that where they start out? Mm-hmm. Um, even. Yeah. You love the Dreadfort with its super tasteful it's- decor. It's so stupid. It's Halloween every day. <laughs> so dumb. Their lordly image is like what a 12-year-old would pick. Oh, maybe. Maybe the first Lord of the Dreadfort was 12. Seriously, ask your son. Like, hey, I want to be really badass. <laughs> what should I pick? And he'd be like, skeleton. No, uh, he'd say something about fart jokes, probably. 
Oh my god. So it's basically we're seeing all of the northern dramas through Theon's eyes, but like Theon is just—it's about rid- Theon. Yeah, it's he's ridiculously traumatized. So it's sort of him reconnecting with his sense of self, but mm-hmm. also wanting to be a different self. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds like it sounds like I'm high after what I just said. <laughs> it does definitely sound like like, like an English it's essay, like, man. <laughs> Yeah, man. Just like talk about the self a lot. Again. You'll get an A for sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll get into it. There's so many things. There, there's like so much good in this plot line. Mm-hmm. And even just plot wise, it's very, very interesting. Yes. Yeah, I get, I get very excited. Just the internal tensions at Winterfell are amazing. Yeah. It's a snowbound with a murderer kind of like it's, tension from that. It's one of those like I, I don't want to like uh, I don't reread the. Uh, the chapters very often because they're very heavy. Like all of them are very heavy. So it's not it's not the kind of reading that you like enjoy, but it's the kind of reading that's very rewarding. If that makes any yeah. sense. Every time I reread a Theon chapter, something new springs out. Every mm-hmm. time, yeah, it's, it's, it's like the Dornish chapters that way. Yes, uh, stop it. And the Cersei chapters do have that effect. It's just like, oh, yep. I didn't notice that. Wow. Yes, absolutely. No, but I think that now that like both of us are writing fiction kind of uh very regularly even though it's just fan fiction, like we kind of have like a deeper appreciation of just how much thought is put into absolutely everything you write. <laughs> so which is why every yeah. time there's like something that makes fun of Martin taking long, I just mm-hmm. would, I would be like leave him alone. <laughs> yeah. Leave I'm I'm trying to get to that leave Brittany alone person. <laughs> From 2004 or whatever. Yeah. But, like, yeah, the, like, uh, these are the books where you can really tell, like, this man agonizes over every line. Um, so, after Theon, there is our homeboy. Jamie. Jamie. <laughs> Just Jamie. He has seven plus one, so he has only one chapter in Dance with Dragons. It's a good chapter. Mm-hmm. It's very good. You get to go to Panny Tree, and you get to meet the Blackwoods, and there's Hildy's Turnips. There's Hilly's turnips, and then there's also a cool cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. But, uh, no, I mean, Jamie's seven chapters are the bigger meat of it in, mm-hmm. in A Feast for Crows. It's very much a travelogue through the Riverlands while he struggles with his conception of what is honor and what is knighthood. Yeah, and uh, his relationship with Cersei. His family and mm-hmm. his duty and his internal and external honor. Uh. Yeah. Hey, guess who also has seven plus one chapters? It's really just eight chapters in a feast. But yeah. Well, she, no. seven plus one is eight. Yeah. But, no, Brienne, <laughs> Brienne also, I, I, it's impossible to mention Jamie without mentioning Brienne in the same breath. Because and Brienne vice has eight versa. chapters in, in Feast, and hers is also a travelogue through the Riverlands, where she mm-hmm. struggles with <laughs> questions of identity and what it means to be a knight and her internal versus external honor yeah. and her relationship to her family a little bit. Yeah. Well, well, it's it's more so her relationship to the world. Yeah. It, she and Selwyn are pretty cool. Yeah. Well, well, the the few the few times where she does think about her father, it's kind of like devastating because she thinks about how her father deserves a better daughter than her and things like that. Mm-hmm. But he seems to have been like you know. Pretty supportive, so he's like, "Take Dunk's shield. You'll have a great time." <laughs> and like, but like, even like in a feast for crows, he like uh, Renly mentions how like you know everything your father said about you is true. So I, I, I think he's a bit of a, like a soccer dad. <laughs> yeah, he's just a pr- he's like a proud papa. Yeah, I want to meet someone. <laughs> Maybe we will. Maybe. Um. All right. 
with nine chapters, it's five plus four. Mm-hmm. It's the Ironborn. Yeah. Um, and that's the Nunkles and Asha. Yeah, we is- group them together. Which is maybe perhaps not fair, but also kind of is. I don't know. No, I kind of think it's like the Dornish Theater and the like Iron Islands Theater, but they the problem is they're fucking pirates, so they're not like in one geographic location yeah. at any point. No, it's it's really Asha who who you're not sure belongs with these the Yabus, but um they do kind of start in the same place. They start at the King's Moot, so. Yeah, and it's also because Asha is kind of, like, legitimately plunked out of her own plotline into someone yeah. else's. We record an entire podcast about this. Yeah, we'll like it. I definitely like the Ironborn more now than I did before, but still. <laughs> it's a long podcast. It's, uh, like, over two hours, but um, listen to it. Yeah. There's more of an appreciation. Uh, some struggle with identity, more struggle with, like, place in the world, uh, yeah. you know. And your own stupidity. Um, sort of combating, I'd say personal and political. Yeah, for sure. Oh, definitely, definitely. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, okay, hey, good job. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the people involved are really stupid, so, you know. Ash is not stupid, but the She's other ones are. She's not stupid, but then, she, but then she stops being involved in her own plot line. Yeah. <laughs> That's the issue. Um, it's okay. Speaking of nine- uh, women and political power who aren't stupid. Oh. <sighs> nice segue. I love it. That was, that was uh, <laughs> world class. Daenerys has 10 chapters mm-hmm. in A Feast for... In A Dance with Dragons. Oh my god. Yeah, she's Why not in A Feast for Crows. Um, I know. And I was picturing A Dance with Dragons as I was just boldly saying A Feast for Crows. Yeah. Well, she's like one of the two dragons in A Dance with Dragons, so, you know. Um, Shut up! <laughs> is the other one Tyrion? Yes. He's a secret target. <laughs> yes. Wonderful. No, uh, she's, this is all about her ruling Marine and her mm-hmm. attempts to do so. And all the shit she has to deal with. This, this woman, she's not even a woman. She's a girl. Is dealing with a lot of shit. She is just a foolish girl innocent <laughs> in the ways of war. Deals with a lot in- of shit. In the ways of war. And there's like a anatomically impossible dance at one point. Um, she gets married, she gets a boyfriend. There's a lot of of literal shit, too, that she has to deal with, too. Yeah, that's true. There's, like, dysentery right outside the walls. Yeah, so, like, this is one of those plot lines where it was like, oh, nothing happens, but shit ton happens. So. I have no idea what people were reading. Yeah, no, but, like, every single chapter is, like, a whole new kind of, like, situation that she has to deal with. You may not be interested in what's happening. Mm-hmm. You might not think it's very accessible to like get engaged with yeah. it. But stuff happens. Yeah, a lot like like first first off she's dealing with this kind of like internal insurrection where people are killing unsullied and freedmen. Um right, kind of like in the name of uh Kaskari mm-hmm. culture. Uh then uh Karth joins basically Yunkai and uh Yunkai in this war against her and she's trying to deal with that because like the the um what's his face? X X D he shows up because he's not dead. Um and he's he's like, Oh yeah, we'll 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 give you thirteen ships uh and she's like, No, I'm gonna stay here and then uh then the shit happens, right? The Astapori refugees showed up. Oh my god, we can't untangle the entire... Yeah, first Astapor falls. We can't falls. untangle the entire Myrnes knot. Come on. No, we're just, we're just saying, like... Because then Astapor comes. We, we see Astapor falling. Astapor Yeah. We see Astapor falling from Quentin's point of view. And then the refugees come, and they bring dysentery with them. And mm-hmm. then uh, she decides that she'll marry his daughter if he gives her the, the, the 90 days of peace. Right? Mm-hmm. And then, But, like, Yunkai actually shows up and is besieging the city. 
Nothing happens. No, nothing happens. And that's just halfway through. That's halfway through. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, she gets on a fucking dragon. And flies away. For a logical reason, though. Yeah. She was, he was <laughs> well, injured and she was trying to help him. Yeah. It's complicated. It's, she it's magic. She was trying to save everyone. It's magic. She was also trying to save everyone. Mm-hmm. And then she has a vision quest where she yeah, her last, a lot of shit. Her last chapter was, is vision quest where she, yeah, she, she gets diarrhea and miscarriage and she sees things. And there's well, ants. she and Milo have very bad taste in berries. <laughs> yes. There are meaningful ants, and uh, she's uh, she encounters some Dothraki at the very end. But she's got her horse. Her horse. Oh my god! She's got her dragon right next to her. Yeah. So eating some meat. Yeah, you're not quite sure, but what the circumstances of this meeting will be? I'm just quite sure it won't be what the other one was. Uh, anyway, then we've got. Our next heavy hitter in A Dance with Dragons in terms of numbers of chapters. So Danny had 10, Tyrion has 12 chapters. Yeah, Tyrion loves having chapters. And they're all in dance. Um, he actually has the most chapters out of any character in the series so far. He's got like 49. Um, yes. But he, most of them are in... Uh, like, he has more chapters than the next two uh, characters put together in a Clash of Kings. So... <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, so much shit happens that can really only be told from his point of view. Yeah. No, that's so. totally why, but just, yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You can kind of tell who the author likes writing best. Um, <laughs> who wouldn't? He's really funny. Yeah, he's funny and he's smart. He's observant. Um, and he's also got, like, a lot of flaws that are yeah. just begging to be written about. And in this in this book in particular, he's a little bit, he's kind of aware of those flaws. Mm-hmm. Kind of kind of down on himself. Well, we're definitely going to have to link a series of essays by poor Quentin, where he writes right. about uh, this plot line in uh, Feast, in A Dance with Dragons, where, like, um, his kind of thesis is that, like, this is kind of a meta commentary on the hero's journey, right? Like, the narrative wants Tyrion to be on this hero's journey, and he kind of refuses to. Yeah. He's like, no, I see you narrative, and I'm not going along with you. Meanwhile, Quentin wants to be on the hero's journey, and the narrative refuses to let him. Exactly. <laughs> oh. No, but he's traveling. Um, he's he ends up in Ilario yeah, Mapatis' manse across Essos. In yeah, some ways. and Ilario Mapatis is just like, "I'm going to use you in your scheme," and Tyrion in my scheme, and Tyrion is like, "Oh, I see what you're doing." But like the whole thing is like, "I see what you're doing," especially in the first half of the thing. Yeah, and like even even the the pieces are he meets a hidden prince. And yeah, he's like, and he's nah. like, seriously, seriously, narrative. Like it's it's there are aspects of it that are extremely metafictional. So he does save Aegon's life. Yeah, and he's kind of like not sure why. He's just I think he just like didn't have anything better to do. You know, like it has that kind of air. He gets a little bit confused by like how much he cares, and mm-hmm. then when he finally realizes, oh, I just kind of don't want to die because he almost dies in a storm. Yeah. Like that almost confuses him. Yeah, it's not that, that he that- wants to live exactly; it's that he just doesn't want to die. Yeah, so he starts formulating plans, working with what he can. He's a mm-hmm. smart dude. Yeah, he's very so smart dude. He-, he ends up uh, he ends up as a slave for a not mm-hmm. insignificant period of time. Um, he ends up bonding with another dwarf uh, very closely for the first time. Mm-hmm. And a commoner, I thought. Yeah, and I, I think like it's it's even like the first time he's really bonded with with a woman without any kind of like sexualness to it. Yeah, that's probably very important too. Which like she actually wants like at least something, and yeah. he's like no, no. Well, she's like very young too, so 
Yeah. Well, he he just doesn't. It would be messy. Yeah. Uh. But yeah, those are you know they're very nihilistic chapters mm-hmm. in that way. But. But like the character is nihilistic. Like the writing yeah, isn't nihilistic. The... No, 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 no. Martin's not nihilistic at all. No, he's actually kind of like uplifting. Yeah, not he's he's a romantic, but not like a bodice ripper romantic. He's like a like Byron, <laughs> a romantic or something like like no, but just like um, Elio of Westeros.org fame likes to talk about this a lot. How he's uh he's into that kind of stuff about like you know nostalgia and ruined civilizations and things like that, and you yeah. can really see that in the Tyrion chapters. With, yeah, you really can. Like this whole kind of preoccupation with how things used to be and how how like you know like civilization that we have now is really like something that's built on the ruins of other things um so correct yeah and that really comes through in these Tyrion chapters someone else has 12 chapters between feast dance mm-hmm. but they're just split between two books yeah there's uh, only so two we- in dance yeah but this it's like we're talking about Cersei. <laughs> um, <laughs> like it's definitely all one arc within feast dance I mean, yeah. there's a there's a definite like there's a logical ending point that feast ends with, but like you can't really appreciate the entire arc until you have it all. You need the walk. Yeah, you need the walk. And Kevin's wonderful observations. Yeah, that's too. But yeah, like <laughs> well, like the the arc begins in the very first Cersei chapter in A Feast for Crows, where she has a dream where she's sitting on the Iron Throne, and then she realizes that she's naked, mm-hmm. and then it ends with a walk, where where she's naked. she's naked and everyone can see her. So, Do you get it? Yeah. <laughs> Adventure stink. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> poor Quentin. Poor, poor Quentin. But I'm, I'm saying, like, poor as in, yeah. <laughs> that that Tumblr handle can be confusing. <laughs> well, I think the Tumblr handle is trying to make the same point you were about to make, so, you know. I know, I know. Anyway, Cersei, what's she up to, Julia? She is trying to rule the Seven Kingdoms, and it turns out she sucks at it. Uh, well, she doesn't have time to appoint the Master of Arms. She's busy ruling the kingdom. <laughs> and she doesn't have time to hang out with Marjorie, because she's busy ruling the kingdom. She's busy She's busy being like, oh, we were going to have this person be in this position? Well, no. <laughs> I'm just going to appoint uh, Rosby. <laughs> Giles Rosby, because that will punk the Tyrells. Yeah. Well, um, and Uranian Waters kind of looks like Rhaegar if you squint <laughs> and if you're drunk. So I'm going to give him all <laughs> which these I ships. always am. So therefore, <laughs> and I'm going to name one of the ships after my father because then they'll have to use a female pronoun. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um. Oh, Cersei, we love her. We really, really do. Yeah. So she's trying to rule the Seven Kingdoms, but unfortunately. She has no idea what she's doing, and she's completely paranoid at this point. Yeah, like like mental, like it's a mental condition. Yeah, I would say her paranoia because because of this prophecy. There's been um sort of triggering events, I guess, with her her son's death. Yeah, but like the thing about Cersei is that she's kind of like the classic example, I think, of like how abusers become abusees become abusers. Right? Yes. Yeah, very much yeah, so. Yeah, so she's kind of very much simultaneously victimized and a victimizer. Well, see, we keep use, we use this expression about Cersei a lot called internalized misogyny. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of case in point of this too. Yeah. And it's like you internalize these fucked up messages, but then 
it's it's this like loathing that's then turned outward in a not constructive way. And she's also kind of fundamentally not a good person. Like I don't think she ever really had a chance to be a good person. But Oh. Oh. Cersei Lannister never had a chance. It's a meta. Okay. Ah. <laughs> We, we did an entire we did an entire podcast episode about her too. Oh, we did do an entire podcast of Cersei. We should link about her. And finally, coming in at number one with mm-hmm. thirteen whopping chapters, all of which are in *A Dance with Dragons*, we have Jon Snow. Jon Snow? Question mark. Yeah, his name is still Jon Snow. He. I don't. I would be surprised if he's ever like call me Jon Targaryen. That will never happen. No. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Um, yes. Anyway, very similar to Danny, um, in terms of struggle with leadership. Mm-hmm. But in his case, he's just the recently elected Lord Commander of the Wall, and he's kind of dealing with a whole bunch yeah, of with shit. Stannis and the wildlings and his brothers. And fucking dead people. Yeah, that too. Uh, it's another thing, like, a lot happens. Um. Nothing happens, he just counts meat. Yeah. It's counting how he, they're going to run out of meat very, very soon. And, like, yeah. No, like he does like he's building basically this like alliance against the others, right? Yes, correct. And his whole thing is that there's some dead people out there and he wants alive people on his side. Mm-hmm. So he tries to be very utilitarian in his way of getting there. Exactly. Um Yes. I like this. I like John's stuff. Yeah, you know, um did we talk about Danny giving moral concessions? Because he gives some moral concessions. Yeah. And just like, um. They parallel each other so closely. Yes. Yeah. They might as well be related. <laughs> no, like by the end of it, like he makes all these decisions that seem like very reasonable at the time. And like you really like see that, like, you know, it was perfectly understandable that he made these decisions. But by the end of the book, like you can see how he's basically arrived at this spot that he's not happy about. All he needed was a publicist, honestly. <laughs> That's that fair. It. That is fair. Right? Yeah. Jenny would have set him straight. Uh, but yeah, it's frustrating. And, but good. I'm, yeah, I'm into these chapters. Mm-hmm. John, John is, um, it's weird because he's kind of a similar in personality to Sansa, but yet I'm really gripped by her in a way I'm less gripped by him, but I like him. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah, his chapters are very, like, he's another character who's very kind of, external like i don't even want to say external but like you could tell he's actually actively not trying to he's actively trying to not think about things things that we want him yeah, to I think mean, about he's, a, he's an internal character i think yeah. by nature but he's not letting himself yeah do it because he has so much external shit going on and he's just like okay mm-hmm. i have to stick by what i'm doing uh oh he kind of parallels Ariane. yeah but hmm. like Ariane will think for pages and pages which he will never do yeah, absolutely. Because she lets herself second-guess herself more. Yeah. Because she's Ariane. <laughs> anyway, talking about something other than Ariane. Um, Why? Because the, she'll take over. <laughs> anyway, those are the characters. We just kind of want to give you a rundown, like the general idea of what happened. Yeah, just a general idea of what happens for 50 minutes. Um, there's a lot of characters. Have you met us? Come on, Kylie. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of characters, just, you know, mm-hmm. these the stories, what's going on. So, n- so now that you, we've reoriented you with the plots, hopefully, or sledgehammered you in the face with them, as is our want, I th- we're going to talk about some themes, right? Yes, we are. That's what we do. Yeah. 
So, and we kind of touched on them already for a few, but we're going to go more specifically. So the, the main thing about Feast Dance is, you know, the first three books were go, go, go. There's this war that's tearing through Westeros. And there are all these characters reacting to these events, right? Mm. And then, you know, the title of Feast for Crows has a meaning to it. Yeah, there's there's some quotes. First of all, when the Ironborn descend upon the Reach and the news reaches King's Landing, uh, Cersei has a little bit of a meeting in the dead of night. And uh, Grand Maester Pycelle is told that... Um, this man called the Crow's Eye is responsible for this. And he says, Carrion crows make their feast upon the carcasses of the dead and dying, said Grand Maester Pycelle. They do not descend upon hale and healthy animals. Yes. So the feast for the crows. Well, there's there's another quote. Isn't there? Yeah, I'm finding it. And then Ramsay turns to his dad at the dinner table and says, let's give them a feast for the crows. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> And uh, also related to the Ironborn, uh, oddly enough, um, when Asha and the Reader are talking um, about... It's almost like the Reavers of the Crows or something. <laughs> uh, we're talking uh, about whether or not she's going to make a claim. Yeah, well, she's basically talking... She mentioned something about people fighting amongst themselves. And the Reader, uh, Lord Roderick, says, Crows will fight over a dead man's flesh and kill each other for, their, for his eyes. Lord Roderick stared across the sea, watching the play of moonlight on the waves. We had one king, then five. Now all I see are crows. Squabbling over the corpse of Westeros. Very meta commentary by him. Yeah. Imagine that. Insert. <laughs> it's possible. So George Basically like the idea behind like Feast Dance and uh Feast for Crows especially is that like we had the war and now here's what happens after the war. You know, it's Correct. it's it's not about like, you know, the great battles and, you know, the kings and like the death of kings and all that. It's about, you know, those annoying little mopping up operations. It's about like rebuilding things, you know, trying to work within this new kind of, you know, alliance of convenience that all of these wars have brought out. And like then other people reacting to this new paradigm. Yeah, I mean it's it's messy Mm -hmm. like what what is left behind is messy and in some way that messiness is the point and maybe we don't want to see the consequences we don't want to deal with them and that's kind of the point Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways too the characters don't want to be dealing with it jamie doesn't want to have to be figuring out you know how to lift this siege when he swore he wouldn't take up arms and all that yeah but just like you know he swore like with a knife uh, with a sword pointed at his throat, just like, you know, this Tyrell alliance was like something that they had to do. Like they had to make a decision right now. And now, you know, they're committed to it. So, you know, yeah, exactly. It, it, it's just very, yeah, it, it bogs you down, but I think Mm -hmm. you're supposed to feel bogged down because you can't have what happened in the first three books without an impact. It just wouldn't be genuine. Is that the adjective I'm looking for? Well, realistic isn't the right adjective, but I think that's what we mean. Um, I think I meant it would be disingenuous to just be disingenu- able to ignore, yeah. these implica- to ignore the implications. Exactly. So, yeah, gen- genuine is totally the antonym of disingenuous. <laughs> uh, but, no, but just like things like the consequence of the war is kind of like symbolized by uh, Jamie and his new golden hand, right? Like, yes. you know, the same way like he can't operate now the way that he used to operate. Because he keeps he, knocking he's over a, fucking wine goblins. Yeah, he's 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 a different person now, and he can't 
he can't really just pretend that like all the stuff in the first three books never happened. And he can't kind of, yeah. he can't leap into action anymore. Not just because like, uh, you know, of his in- injury, but just, uh, I don't, but also because of the change to his character. Yeah. So it's just kind of like, we call it the stinking corpse theme. I don't know what the theme. <laughs> yeah. The, the carrion crow theme. Is. Yeah, exactly. But it, this does really go through. It's, it's, it's like the scars that are, are not, they're healing, but mm-hmm. they're leaving scar tissue and we have to, you know. Yeah. That's a terrible analogy. No, it's a really good analogy. Like when, when like you know you're you're injured, your skin is broken, or whatever. Like you heal, but you still have a scar, right? It's a perfect analogy. Yeah, but then think about like Theon. This might be the arc with this theme is the most mm-hmm. bashed into your face. Like he, there's no going back to normal. No, but there is no normal. Is what he's kind of discovering too. Is like this person he was. That's not who he wants to be either. Mm-hmm. He didn't really ever have a place. And all he knows is that if he somehow survives this situation, he wants to be better than what he ever was. Yeah. And it's... It's dark. Oh, it's definitely dark. But it's... No, but but just like the entire series is kind of a deconstruction of this whole kind of glorious fantasy war thing, right? Right. It's not, you know, marching into Mount Doom and triumphantly destroying the ring. Although... To be fair, Frodo did take a toll. Yeah. Yeah. But that's that's kind of like the perception of even that, like, even though, like, you know, that theme of the whole thing about how you can't just, like, go back to the Shire and live a normal life, even though that theme yeah. is there, like, the, still the public perception of that story is the story. It's probably because yeah. Jackson cut out the scouring of the Shire. <laughs> well, he did the whole thing with the, right? oh, well, scouring of the Shire was interesting. Um, <laughs> it was. It was thematic. It definitely was thematic. It was something. Um, <laughs> anyway, w- w- what was my point? That it's not the whole series is deconstructing mm-hmm. that, like, hero quest win. Yay. Yeah. The whole kind of, you know, and they lived happily ever after part, I suppose. Um, Martin doesn't let you get off that easily. No, he never, he never does. I mean, like, even, like, you know, in little things, that's his thing. Like, like when something bad happens, he doesn't let it just kind of pass by. Like, even, like, with Lala Stokeworth. Um, he follows through on the implications of what yeah. he writes. Like, you don't just see her, like, you know, horribly raped and abused. You see, like, you follow her through everything that happens afterwards. Like, even up to this point, we're still hearing about what's going on with Lola Stokeworth. And her baby. So, yeah. Tyrion Tanner. <laughs> yep. Um, oh my god. Brown is such a troll. <laughs> he's he's kinda, something. He's the worst. Yeah. But yeah, so Theon Theon Jamie is definitely a very close look at this. Brienne has the closest look of the ravaged lands, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um it's very interesting because it's her first point of view, so like the scars that she, she doesn't really have the scars of the same sense. She earns them on the strip for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh you know, it's it's very interesting that we sort of are almost seeing just the destitute lay of everything through kind of um naive eyes, if that's fair to say. Yeah, well, she's naive and she's also not. Like that's the thing about Brienne. Yeah. You know, she talks about how, like, a maiden has to be suspicious. Things like that. Yeah, um, she's she's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to think. <laughs> you know, no, you know who else exemplifies this theme really well? Is, um, Who's that? 
Barry. Yeah, definitely. Because, like, Barry is kind of, he's had this long life of, like, glory. He's, like, you know, he's an exemplary Kingsguard. But, like, he doesn't really have much to show for it for himself. But he just feels like he kind this of, guy. He hates his track record, yeah. Yeah. He kind of feels like he's wasted his life just, like, protecting assholes. Um, and, you know, he thinks wistfully about the times where he could have had something and he decided not to because of his duty and things like that. And or, like, maybe if he hadn't done his duty so well, would the kingdoms be in a better spot? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... That's that, that's also kind of very de- deconstructiony because, like you know, this it's that he's supposed to be like you know what everyone is supposed to be striving for, but it hasn't brought him much personal satisfaction at all. No, he's very like not like he really does feel like he's just an old man. Mm-hmm. He's kind of he really wants to get behind Danny and really make this work, and then like she might be dead. He doesn't really know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's really good at losing kings. It's so sad. I hate it so much. <laughs> They're really good chapters, though. Really fucking good. I agree. I'm trying to, like, pull Bran into this to see if it fits, but I'm not getting there. I'll be honest. Well, Bran is kind of like, this is the point where he definitely kind of gives up on certain things, right? Correct. Like, th- this whole time he's been kind of hoping that this journey is to get back to normal. You he'll know, never, but, but then he'll never walk again. But he'll fly. It's a new normal. Yeah. We can move on to a different theme. After the whole stinking corpse thing, I think the, the second most important theme is definitely identity, right? Absolutely. Which is, of course, kind of very intimately related to the whole stinking corpse thing. But, but like, at the same time, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire, I think, is almost defined by this theme in general. Mm-hmm. Because these closed POVs are very unique, as what, from what I can tell. Yeah. I, th- I think George R. Martin is influencing a lot of writers now, but... It's actually really funny, because um, I had to not participate in this conversation, but on my trip, there are some people <laughs> that are, like, reading... They're like, yeah, we're reading the Game of Thrones books, and, like, I'm already biting yeah, my tongue. That's and, not like, a good place to start with Kylie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a happy drunk, fortunately, so I was just like, okay, I'm not even gonna touch it. But they were talking about how frustrating they find these point of views to read, because it's like, yeah, then I'm really getting into this, and then it's someone else. And then that's how I feel the entire time. And you're like, oh. But you really get to explore their headspace, like, a bunch of different characters' headspaces, and I I think it's Mm -hmm. great how it works. It's definitely, like, like, in terms of you know, characterization, it's definitely, like, this kind of method can't really be beat, I don't think. No. I mean, it's what I copy when I write my shitty fanfic about <laughs> Legend of Korra. Mm-hmm. It's the only thing I, I know how to do. No, it's true, because we read this way too much. Um, yeah. <laughs> both so of like, us are just like, so I could do a close POV, or I could... Yeah. What like, else why is there? Not pick it? Yeah. It, it really allows the, the inner struggles so well, mm-hmm. because... It's what not we gotta too- do is we gotta read some Hemingway, so then we can do like the whole icebreak method. Ugh. I mean, okay. You don't like the icebreak method? I just don't, Hemingway, Hemingway leaves me a little cold. He's just, you could use an adverb every now and then, dude. <laughs> Wouldn't have killed you. They might have killed him. Yeah, he was already working on that. Yeah. Psoriasis. Anyway, um, <laughs> Hemingway's liver aside, we really like these close people. No, c- c- identity is really just, you you can't ignore what these characters' conceptions of self are because of the close POVs. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And 
And especially in Feast Dance, when the action slows and all they really have is introspection. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I agree. That's that's really important because, like, you know, once you kind of strip away all this stuff, like that's, I think that's that's very important in Jamie's arc in particular. That like he's kind of been stripped of all the things that gave him an external identity, right? So all he has left is trying to decide for himself, like what his own conception of himself is kind of the same with Bran. Yeah. She, you know, all she has is a vow. Tyrion, definitely. Like he'd no longer kind of, he can't really hide behind his whole like snarky Lannister thing anymore. Correct. So he's kind of trying to figure out exactly what it is that he values in life and about himself. We've got, Sansa and Arya both taking on new identities and struggling yep. with their inability to leave theirs behind. Same with Theon. Mm-hmm. Theon's, I mean, Theon's is, is in a kind of like in a different way that the way that he can't let go of his identity. But yeah, he he can't let go of his identity. But he's more like I mean, he's tortured and conditioned into like yeah. policing. He's not like his own tortured thoughts. like an emo. He's like literally tortured. He's literally uh, tortured, and he polices his own thoughts because that's how mm-hmm. fucking messed up this made him. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to think. I mean, there's okay. Like, we'll just mention Dorne. Um, yeah, there's Ariane's identity as Princess of Dorne, like the heir. Yeah, what that means, what she feels like that means, she has to be doing. Yeah, I mean, and just like this is. It's also the kind of just like if I don't have like my external identity, what do I have apart from that? Not my dad's love. Yeah. So, kill me, uh, Quentin. Same thing, because mm-hmm. he's got some Martell guilt. He knows I, <laughs> I am Dorn. Yeah, I have to do this. That's that's. It's really just his identity as the Prince of Dorn that's driving him. Yeah, because he kind of doesn't want to be there, and you can kind of tell. <laughs> he's like, "What am I? If I well, I'm part Targ, right? <laughs> that's my identity." They're like, "No, you're a frog." <laughs> All these, all these fake You're identities a too. Good Ever- kid, yeah. Can we talk about everyone who's disguised themselves as someone else? By the way, uh, well, let's go through the POV list. Um, so Mel is like Mel is definitely like you know, her entire thing is based on like glamour and manipulating her percep- the perception that people have of her to effect. Mm-hmm. John Con has been pretending to be somebody else for like fifteen years now. Mm-hmm. Finally, finally, he's what he's really happy about is like I'm going home as John Con. Yeah, I don't have to have blue hair anymore because that's for punks. I think he's pretty uh, secure in who he is. Yeah. Or at least he thinks he is. No, but it was like the, like in his case, the disguise wasn't liberating. It was like, it was like, and he thinks about how shameful it was that people think that he drank himself to death and he's really kind of, he wants to reclaim his reputation as well. Absolutely. Uh, Sansa has become Elaine Stone. Bran is becoming a god um, a wizard kind. i don't know yeah like he's he's uh yeah well he's learning about basically how like the end the end goal of the process he's in now is how he's going to be basically like you know a part uh, i mean, i godhead yeah i mean i guess takes... that counts as an identity thing yeah i mean i wouldn't say he takes on a new identity he does i guess uh mm-hmm. i guess his wolf a little bit with summer yeah but it's 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 a stretch for bran it's which is okay. It doesn't have to no, be but everyone. It's, I don't think it really is because, like, is he Bran Stark anymore in this context? That's true. I don't know. 
Yeah. And then uh, Barry the Scary, he doesn't take on a new identity, but he's basically, he's definitely thinking about, like... Well, he was meaning. Arts and Whitebeard for a little bit, but... Yeah, but that was kind of weird. That was a- uh, but, uh, he's definitely thinking about, like, you know, the meaning of his life and, like, what he's his identity mean- means. Correct. Uh, and Davos da- is Davos pretending is to be a corpse. Man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that kind of works. Uh, it's a bit of a stretch. But he's also kind of, like, like he's also... He has very Barry-like thoughts where he's just, like, I've done all these things in my life and it doesn't mean anything at this point. Um... Yeah. Quentin is in a little disguise. As, uh, as Frog. Yeah. And even before that, he, he was pretending to be a wine merchant, but he couldn't cut it, so he pretended to be the wine merchant servant. I love Quentin. Oh, my God. He can't just pull say that the you, con, right? You want to make him some matzo ball soup? I, I just want to <laughs> pat him on the head and give him matzo ball soup and be like, it's okay, honey. And anyway, yeah, that was a bit of a segue. Arya has many literal disguises, and the whole thing is learning how to be a disguised person. Uh, Sam does not disguise himself. No, but identity is definitely a huge thing with him. Well, and he has to tell tell people he's not afraid, so that's mm-hmm. you know his identity is obviously huge with him. And well, and he's, he's definitely like whole... kind of he's kind of is dealing very much with his conception of of like manhood. I suppose is the right term for it. Well, we'll get to manhood womanhood. That's because mm-hmm. that's another sub. That's the great thing about the identity theme. It's so naughty that there's even like other subcomponents mm-hmm. of it. But um. He kind of he kind of thinks about like what it means to be a Tarly versus a brother. Like, mm-hmm. you know, his his whole thing with I have to pretend to be strong is because he's trying to be this black brother based on the image that John puts out there. Yeah. So there's definitely struggles with identity. It's just he doesn't have a disguise. Anyway, in Dorne, um, well, there's no, there's no like, well, there's there's lies and there's like. Pretending to be something you're not, but there's not, there's not there's no, disguises. They're not like wearing masks or anything. No. shit. Well, I guess they gave Marcella fake bumps. <laughs> that counts. It works in the theme. Awesome. They gave Rosamund uh, fake bumps at any rate. Yeah. Except that Eglantine was totally in on it. She has to be. Oh my god. Uh, I just realized that. <laughs> no, like, Doran, I mean, yeah, Identities related, obviously. Are, mm-hmm. I mean, we just talked about Arianne being princess, a princess of Dorne, the princess of, to be the princess of Dorne. Yes, and that and what that means. But um, let's just move on from Dorne. Theon clearly, re- mm-hmm. and I, then- yeah, the whole thing about you know being gaslit. Is that yes. the term? The whole thing like, haha, they thought you were a prince, but no, you're actually weak. Isn't that funny? That whole thing. Yeah. It's that's very well. He questions yeah. his own reality. He's definitely gaslit. Mm-hmm. Jamie does not take out any disguises, but he struggles with identity in terms of he kind of he's kind of disguises himself at this point. You know, he's trying to. Oh, that's like, a good. Way to look he, he's kind of like you know, what would the Kingslayer do? Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to what would Jamie do? Because that's two very different things. I mean, I think it's always been two different things, but at this point, right. like he know, like it's more of an effort, I suppose, to pretend to be the Kingslayer because of his injury and because of all the trauma. Yes. Like, he he used to really, like, kind of hide behind the whole Kingslayer thing, and now he can't really do that anymore. Yes. That's true. I'm trying... I'm already trying to think to Brienne. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think if she... she I mean, she... Because she doesn't disguise herself, really. She no. won't volunteer that she's of Tarth, but... Mm-hmm. Um, that weird place with no last names. <laughs> she's not really disguising. No. But, like, um... She does have elements of, like, how, like, she's never felt comfortable in her own skin, you know? Yeah. 
She's she's never felt comfortable with like traditional gender expression. No. And like she, so she like like she think like you know when she's all like dressed up as a woman, I suppose you can say she, like she feels like a fake, but she also kind of feels like a fake dressing up as a knight. Yeah. Even though that's kind of like her natural expression, however you phrase it. Well, she says there's no place for her. Like she she says that. You know, I don't even know if that's she. It's that she's naturally a knight. It's just that if you're not comfortable in dresses, then you have to be comfortable in armor. That's the society Westeros is. Yeah, but she's definitely more comfortable. Like she's definitely more comfortable in armor. Yeah, and and like she, that's definitely like kind of her skill set. Yeah, and that's her interest too. mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, I mean, it, I don't, I don't think like her brain, like you know, when when she was a teenager and she decided to do this whole like night thing, this warrior maid thing, like her brain wasn't like, oh, I don't feel comfortable in the dress, therefore this is the only alternate expression. I think it was, it was actually like, this is what I actually want to do. I want to learn yeah. this. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, so I think that's fair to say, but she's not in disguise. Yeah, so no, 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 <laughs> the disguising doesn't quite work. The iron bore. They're not disguised. No. Euron is disguised as a person who actually knows what the fuck he's doing. Um, hey yo. <laughs> And Ash is a little bit like she she kind of has that whole like gender expression thing too, right? Where, yeah, a bit. I mean, I mean she's definitely more, she's a lot more comfortable in her like womanhood than Yeah, it's more that she's making a performance of what the culture requires and she doesn't like that. Yeah. But she does it because she knows she has to. Mhm. But that's not really a disguise. No. Danny's definitely undisguised as Danny in this, but then she's also could, like, she with her floppy ears, the queen of the rabbits must yes, never be seen without her floppy ears. Yes, exactly. So she's she's selling her own soul, but she's still able to call mm-hmm. herself Danny, which is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Tyrion's YOLO. Yeah, and he's he's uh, he's in various disguises. He he can't be himself because he has a price on his head. Um, YOLO, Jesus Christ! Out of all the names, <laughs> this is before YOLO was a thing, you know. Was it? I when think did this so. come out? No, it came out in 2011. Was YOLO a thing before that? You Only Live Once? Yeah. It was popularized by a 2011 song, The Motto, by Drake. Drake is responsible for this bullshit? But yeah, that's the that's the song. So, okay, yeah, this was before it. Well, I'm sure. It is, it. is tickled by that. <laughs> Probably, but Tyrion's literally in disguise, and then, yeah, definitely also struggling with his own place in the world. Mm-hmm. He ca- he knows that he wants to fuck over his family, but past that, <laughs> he wants to rape his sister. It's very important to him. Step A, and then Step B is profit. <laughs> I guess. Um, Cersei is disguising herself as Tywin. Yeah, that's true. I don't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't she- really work with Cersei. This is no, it doesn't but- at all. Like she has, she has struggles with identity. Yeah, and gender expression again. Um. Mm-hmm. And then John is in the same boat as Danny. Mm-hmm. Well, he's, he's not wearing a disguise. Cunningly disguised as a competent Lord Commander. Cunningly disguised. <laughs> oh my god. He has a cunning plan, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but just like, he's kind of, he's kind of hoping that if people think that he knows what he's doing, then that will mean he knows what he's doing. Like, but not in a bad way. Like, it's not like he's like, you know, incompetent or anything but he's just very aware that like he has to be seen to be a leader mm-hmm. much like danny again yeah so i guess it's not that many it's only six point of views but it's just that it's so like the disguises are so hit over the head yeah oh seven wait i might count wrong whatever there's uh, it, you're the counter you have the degree in engineering yeah i'm also running on like 
three hours of sleep right now. <laughs> Why did you think recording was a great idea? Anyway. <laughs> I don't know. How we come down from New Orleans. Yeah. I like, you know, went out and I'm an INTP, so now I'm exhausted, so, you know. Didn't you go out on Friday? I went out on Friday. I'm still not recovered. Yeah. Okay. It's Sunday. Mm-hmm. Okay. I drank in a different city for the past four days and then had to get up at 4.45 to catch a flight today. So this is the perfect time to keep talking about identity. Let's talk about womanhood and manhood. Yeah, it's an important theme in Feast Dance. It is. It's kind of like, it's it's almost inescapable to mm-hmm. to read this book and then not realize there's not not realize, but like th- his commentary on gender is very accessible. Yeah, I know. Should we go through the POVs again? Uh, well, let's just like actually call out the ones that work. Let's not be like, uh. well, I suppose the first one we can talk about is Quentin. Was, yeah, it was, yeah, okay. Yeah, like he's very. Um... Quentin has a lot of anxiety surrounding his. It's not necessarily his manhood. He's just kind of petrified of women. Yeah, but he's kind of he's kind of. But it's definitely this, like, cultural expectation that a man has sex. Especially, really like, into sex. Especially because the Dornish play up their public persona to the rest of Westeros. Mm-hmm. As, like, oh, yeah. And or, if there's one person who's not, like, a Dornish stereotype, it's Quentin. <laughs> and he's also a prince of Dorn. He's supposed to be, like, like picture Yeah, he's, Dorn, a, he's like. supposed to be super Dornish. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, his, his idea of the princely image is, like, more Doran, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, he definitely has a, a... He definitely struggles with, um... Not, he doesn't, like, outwardly think, am I manly enough to do this? It's just that's kind of this anxiety that is related to his, you know, confidence and his expression. And Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Garrus, Garrus has all the swagger he doesn't. Yeah, Garrus is the one who's supposed to be the prince, right? Right, exactly. That's D- Danny thinks so. Um, Sam has very, very, very intimate struggles with his manhood. Mm-hmm. How he conceives of strength, how he conceives of what he's supposed to be, you know, like Dickon was the warrior, that's what his father wanted. And he's just, you know, his father basically abused him because he liked to sing. Yeah, he liked to wear velvet and sing and learn yeah that's the i mean yes he struggles with manhood a lot yes um, absolutely Aran doesn't really struggle with womanhood but she no well like, she's uh how to phrase it like she kind of is very like she's always aware of her gender because of her anxiety if that makes sense yeah and she does think that her gender is a big factor in what's going on mm-hmm. around her because it's kind of there are kind of inescapable implications of what she's seeing. Yeah. So, like, well, she thinks she thinks that like what her story is kind of if that's the right way to phrase it. Like, if these characters were aware of the fact that they're in a story, what she thinks her story is, at least for the first half, is a story about her gender. So, yes, correct. So it kind of varied explicitly ties into it. Mm-hmm. Um, does Theon really think about his manhood? Yes. 
Yeah. I mean, like, I actually, I got an ask today. About uh, whether he was castrated? You got that one too? Yeah, I did. We keep getting, people Guys. send us, like, both the same ask. It's kind of cute. You don't have to do that. If you send it to one of us, it's like sending it to both of us. So. We talk to each other about every single ask that we get. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> unless it's, unless it's something like this in which we, case we'd say yes, he was castrated, but. Yeah, but, like, um, I mean, I was thinking that if I ever answered that ask, I wouldn't actually say that because, like... Oh, okay. It is, like, it's not especially important No. if, like, his genitals are still intact. I think there's no reason for the implication to be there, unless that was the case. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I like it, that's obviously what the author is dancing around. Yes. Because, like, Theon doesn't want to think about it so explicitly, and who can blame him? That's what um, I'm saying. I'm saying there's a yeah. joyless reason why that line was in there. Yeah. But it isn't, it, the focus on his genitals has nothing to, like, that shouldn't be the focus. Mm-hmm. But yes, I do believe that's what. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. But when we're talking manhood, we're not talking how, you know, they use manhood in A Song of Ice and Fire to mean penis. That's mm-hmm. not what we're talking about. No. <laughs> but. <laughs> at all. <laughs> that is something that Ramsey, like, constantly says to him, like, you're not even a man. So. Well, they're very cis gendered society yeah but like the like the theme is definitely supposed to be there very explicitly so yeah yeah that's true that's true like questioning that he's he's not even weak he's not even a real man he's just this like broken shell of a person and and he thinks about it very explicitly when he thinks that how he wants to die like a man like in battle um so yeah i think the theme is definitely there and it's very important (laughs) yeah that's true it's true it's definitely it's definitely used like to mean dignity. Yes. But def- it's Westeros. Yeah. It's Westeros, and that's to a point, too. Of course, manhood mm-hmm. means dignity. Of course. Um, Jamie certainly thinks about his mm-hmm. own... Is it manhood? Because he's... Yeah, because he's, uh, he's adjusting to... Yeah. His, his disability now. Because, like, manhood is also very definitely tied to, like, you know, ability to participate yeah. in the military system. Martial skill, and yeah. he now lacks it. And yeah, so that's feels... another thing that Sam thinks about too. Yes, being martial. Yeah, and both Jamie and Sam lack that. Jamie mm-hmm. didn't used to though, so of course that throws a lot into question for Jamie. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Does Brienne think about womanhood? I'm not sure. <laughs> that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's why we started talking about this, wasn't it? Because of her. Yeah. Well, so t- so tell us, how does she think about womanhood? She just has absolutely fascinating struggles with her conception of womanhood because she doesn't feel mm-hmm. like she's enough of a woman. She's not. She's not the daughter or the son that her father deserves. Mm-hmm. But yet, she doesn't hate her womanhood. She doesn't hate no, other women. All. She doesn't devalue other women. She even thinks about Catelyn's woman's strength. No. And it's almost in this kind of oh, I wish I could have been like that sort of way, but I'm not. It's, it's it's like she's very unapologetic for who she is, but at the same time, she's horribly uncomfortable with who she is. It's yeah. absolutely fascinating. And, uh, the Ironborn, I mean, like, um, the Ironborn are very kind of obsessed with the concept of manhood. <laughs> I mean, Victorian's entire motivation is to not be emasculated. Mm-hmm. Everything he does is how could I avoid emasculation? Yeah, like, to the point where he's willing to kill somebody he was obviously kill in love his with. wife yeah yeah and like he was actually like you can tell he was actually into her you know and but no yeah. his his own emasculation was 
more terrifying than the prospect of important. killing someone he was in love with. Mm-hmm. Um, even even Aaron, like you think in some ways he wouldn't be, but he's actually one of the most toxically male. I think mm-hmm. among them, he's obsessed with like you know toughness and like I don't care that my feet are literally falling off because I'm tough. <laughs> Things like that. I was so weak before. And now I'm, yeah, it's really fucking weird. And then Asha mm-hmm. is obviously like really aware of all this. She's kind of aware of the bullshittery of it in terms of her own womanhood. She's very aware that people either want to like fuck her or see her as a daughter. Mm-hmm. And she gets that. But yet she also knows I, this is the system I have to navigate. I'm Balin's daughter. What am I supposed to do? Yeah. So she's very unapologetic for her own desires, which I'm a fond fan yeah, of. She's just kind of like, I like having sex. I like having sex with this guy with no hair on his body. <laughs> so. Yeah. Inter- interesting call, but yeah. <laughs> well, like thick man hair. I get it, Asha. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah. And then she also like, is not fast to, you know, she tries to like bond with Allie Mormont to be like, so status is a sexist dick, right? <laughs> and Ellie's like, shut up, don't talk. <laughs> but they totally, they're on first name basis, basis at the end, so. Yeah. yeah. Like, she, she definitely, she definitely feels for women. Mm-hmm. Um, you, her mom is complicated. That's what, like, she's afraid of becoming, I guess. Yeah. So it's, it's like, she definitely has compassion for all these women and womanhood, she doesn't hate womanhood or anything. She's not a misogynist. No. Just a, kind of like a lot like Brienne. Yeah, she's, she actually thinks it's funny when cunt is used as a, like a, mm-hmm. in a derogatory way. Cause she's like, well, it's the only part you give a shit about, so whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Danny thinks about her womanhood. Yeah. Right? She's def- she's, she's also kind of like, like Ariane, she's always kind of, she's forced to be always kind of hyper aware of her gender. Yeah, well, there's the motherhood thing with her too. Yeah, and this whole like implication that she needs she needs a man to rule beside her. Mm Hmm. Yeah, she's not allowed to forget her gender Mm -hmm. because everyone makes a shit fit about Mm -hmm. it. Um, and she, you know, she's definitely not apologetic for her own expression, and she she manipulates it to her advantage when she needs. Uh. She thinks fondly of other women, I guess. She's kind of dealing with, like, very pressing issues. Yeah. It's difficult so for her to reflect on this a whole lot. <laughs> she doesn't have a lot of time to, like, write in her life, uh, my, my space journal about her sexual awakening, even though we can see it happening. Um, She's not locked in a tower for three months. No. <laughs> uh, but, like, Danny, like, you know, she's also, like, kind of, like, you know, at that age where she's, like, transitioning into adulthood. So... That's also a big thing with, like, womanhood and manhood, right? Just, like, not being a child yeah. anymore. Well, she's also kind of, like, half half of Dance with Dragons, this is one of the complaints for her chapters, of her just being like, I really want to fuck Dario. Can I fuck Dario? <laughs> I really want to fuck Guys, Dario. So she's, she's 16. <laughs> she's 16 and developing sexually. Of course she wants to fuck Dario. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, weird choice, Danny. No, I still can't get on board with no. that. But. Yeah. I know women. Women named Daenerys have very strange choices in sexual partners. But what can you say? Oh my, god. yeah. <laughs> oh my god. True words have not been spoken. But 
Like, I, I hope you guys have seen... I, I'll try to link it if I can remember it. It's the comic of, like, book versus show. <laughs> and it just shows this, like... It's like these little cartoon dragons, like, hey, sexy lady. And it's, like, kind of a douche for the show, Dario. And then it shows book Dario, and he's, like, prancing with, like, a rainbow behind him. And he's got, like, his crazy blue hair and his weird forked beard. It's just like, what the fuck? Yeah, they have yeah. a different aesthetic in Westeros than we do. Yeah. Anyway, um, Tyrion and manhood. Let's talk about that. Ish. I mean, he's another guy who always has to cut, he has to always, like, almost defend his manliness because of his disability. Yeah, and a lot of that plays, it's more the intersection of his, he's got his internalized ableism. Yeah. So then that kind of plays off of gender in an interesting way. Yeah, he but- kind of, he always uses sex in a kind of an indominating way. Especially yes. in dance. <laughs> Where he's yes. a rapist. Yes. Um, so your fave is problematic. Yes. Uh, yeah, like, it's it's played with. It's just more that he's fucking a misogynist. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's played with less about his manhood, I think. And I don't know. He's just a ball of uh, overcompensation sometimes. Yeah. So. It's there. It's definitely there. Um, why don't you... I feel like you have some words to say about Cersei and womanhood. <laughs> I don't well, know. Like, Cersei like, basically is internalized misogyny, right? You've called her the poster child. Yeah, before. the poster child. But, um... Well, her whole thing is that, like... I don't, we talked about this quite a bit in our Cersei Lannister hour. But th- the whole thing is that, like, she sees herself as, like, not like other girls in a very literal sense, right? Um, yeah. Basically, she thinks that the gods made a mistake when they made her, right? And the gods are really stupid. The gods are really stupid. Like, she doesn't think that she should, like, physically be a man, but she thinks that, like, she has qualities that are manly, yeah. not like all the other women, Right? Cause she's smart. She's smart. She's strong. And women are stupid. And women are stupid and weak and slutty and like all they're good for is sex. Yeah. And she's like, she's like, she's really internalized the last one, especially that like, um, the only way that she can exert any kind of power is with her body, with her sexuality. Correct. And so that's what she does, but she hates yeah, it's, it. It's, it's not like, it's not like this dysmorphic kind of, I mean, like I, this isn't right. It's just I'm smart. Women aren't smart mm-hmm. because she's a mis- she's a yeah, she, she's she's the exception, <laughs> right? And because of all these traits I have, because mm-hmm. I am intelligent, and because I have so much more to offer, and because I'm so good at these politics, I should be a man. Yeah, but not because yeah. because her brain doesn't conceive that like a woman C- can have these qualities. Yeah, like just the fact like because like like you because of like the patriarchy the patriarchal toxic culture that she is in she just like yeah she's like those are not feminine qualities therefore i'm not feminine i'm tywin with teats but like like, again like kylie said it's not it's not she doesn't have like dysmorphia that way like she's not yeah it's it's funny yeah (laughs) i'm tywin with teats in her solutions therefore i shouldn't have teats where meanwhile in dorn they're just like yeah it's over with teats whatever Uh, yeah, anyway, that brings us to John's manhood, uh, 
ish. It's more his stoic leadership. Yeah. I don't know if his man. I, I would, I would say it's a stretch with him. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's definitely like trying to be manly, I suppose, but like, it's not really, it's not really framed as a gender thing. It's more no, framed it's as not. like a political leadership thing. But yeah, that's, that's one subset of identity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and these, do you, are you getting how thematically cohesive it is? Cause we've been talking for quite some time and we're not even through the theme of identity. <laughs> We haven't even, we have two more themes, and those are, we like limited ourselves mm-hmm. when we were writing these themes out, by the way. Okay, so, uh, leadership, right? That's what we're gonna make? Well, leadership's another subsection of identity. Yeah, leadership uh-huh. and, and making concessions. Yes. Right? So, so, like, making sacrifices for leadership. Like, especially for the greater good at the cost of identity. John and Danny are crazy parallel with Yeah, this. like, they're, they're basically the same story in different places with different characters. <laughs> yeah, and if you, like, the, the more you read it, the more, like, oh, okay. So yeah. this is exactly... Like, I'm sure you can line you know, it up timeline-wise, even, but I, I haven't done that. I'm not sure if anybody has done that. Um, Danny ripping off her tow car is, like, the same exact thing as John being like, okay, I'm going to answer this pink letter. Yeah. Just slightly different endings. Yeah, so I I, I think uh, speculating, but I think uh, Danny uh, uh, John is going to get a Danny X at the beginning of Wins. I'm guessing he's going to get a what? A Danny X. Daenerys ten. Danny. I call it Danny X. <laughs> oh, because oh, I'm oh, so oh, cool. Oh. Yeah, because her tenth chapter oh is the uh, is the Vision Quest one. Okay. Yeah. You're very, yeah. Sorry. I call it I, Danny I thought, X. I had no idea what the fuck you're talking about. I was like picturing like, some cyborg. <laughs> like, yeah. He'll get that Danny X. <laughs> Go. You're um, just sad because just, you're not as cool as I am. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> wow, we're getting contentious here. Stop being so catty. <laughs> just, okay, who else struggles with leadership? Uh, can you make a case for John Cone? You can. I wouldn't. <laughs> Not really. I mean, he did a really good job when he was the captain of that one ship. Yeah, that one little ship with, like, the Septa and the Dornishman. He wasn't even a captain. He just kind of ordered people. <laughs> he just people did what they said because they was, he would glare at them and they didn't. Yeah, exactly. He was just kind of pissy and everyone's like, well, we might as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just realized, should we have talked about Sansa with a womanhood? Probably. Probably. I mean, like, Sansa is very, very comfortable with her gender expression. So. In fact, she draws strength from mm-hmm. the female gender expression, which is in, in, uh, of Westeros, I should say. Yeah. But that's, that's to a very clear point, too, because she's probably on the opposite end of the spectrum of Cersei, and that's to a point. Mm-hmm. And then Sansa's also, like, a teenage girl with a sexual awakening. Yeah. And that, so it's kind of impossible to ignore her gender, but she's like, Totally. Well, like, yeah, not like her story wouldn't exist if her if she wasn't female. So, like, it's all about no, like women couldn't. just being like fucked over. So, it's an armor. She has an armor of fucking courtesy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, we just forgot. I just I was looking at the list. I was like, fuck. She <laughs> really was necessary to say. Yeah. Why did we skip over her? Um, we could have even talked about Arya, but that's, she's, uh, she's just, she doesn't hate any woman. She's, she's more like Brienne. Yeah. 
But at, at, at this point, like the whole kind of like tomboy thing is kind of not as much a thing as it used to be. Yeah. Now it's more just. I mean, she's she's trying on a whole bunch of new faces. I think it's you know how her gender presents is kind of. Yeah. Although the kindly man does once say that like uh, very few of the faceless men are women because of some bullshit about women being more nurturing. <laughs> so. Uh, can he take his kindly protective paternalism of somewhere else? Yeah. He's closer to kindly, kindly take your benevolent sexism elsewhere, sir. <laughs> Mr. Kindly. Um. Mr. Kindly. <laughs> so, uh, Barry and Davos definitely have that whole, like, sacrifice for duty thing going on. Right, with the leadership, we're back to that. Now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what we're supposed to be talking about, my love. <laughs> I hope you guys are able to follow us ever. <laughs> Ariane. No. Um, yeah, you're, you're definitely right about, uh, John Connie. You said Davos? Or Barry, uh, da- Barry, Barry Davos. Davos. Yes. Yeah. Pardon. They're next to each other in this list because they have the same amount of POV chapters. Uh, so. But, and, like, the more, like, they're very similar characters. They really are. They, they are. I'm kind of liking this parallel. Mm hmm. And, like, just like, like they've both sacrificed a great deal for their duty. Like you know, Davos has lost most of his family, and the family that he still has, he like barely knows at this point. Mm-hmm. And Barry doesn't have a family because he sacrificed it all. Yeah, he sacrificed that one crush he had once. He couldn't give her that purity ring that he wanted. She <sighs> probably would. He would have been kicked to the curb. But <laughs> uh, I'm guessing we don't actually know that. It's just my head kind of... No, but uh, yeah. with with Barry, too, he gets leadership kind of thrust upon him because it's like, well, fucking mm-hmm. no one else is going to do this and my queen might be dead and I need my life to go for something and someone was trying to kill her, right? So Yeah. And he's kind of like, he's very consciously like, I'm not a leader, I'm a follower. and Which brings us to Quentin, poor guy. Oh. Who needs to be a leader and he just can't. No. And yeah, then, that's just not his skill set. And obviously, because then when he's like, finally, okay, I'm making these decisions, they're terrible. <laughs> his friends are like, don't. We live in this feudal system and we have to do what you say, but you're really dumb right now, Quentin. We love you, man, but no. You're gonna fucking die. Yeah. And, and he does. He does. Well, dying's not dead, but, um. Yeah. No, he's dead. Oh, right, right, oh, right, right. They say he took him. Sorry, yeah. It took him three days to die horribly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Poor Quentin. I was still thinking Uh, of the weeping. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. Poor guy. So yeah, he really struggled trying to be a leader and trying to live Mm -hmm. up to like a princely image of what a leader is and just being Quentin. Yeah. We just talk about how like, um, how weird it is that he never thinks about the fact that he's just been disinherited basically. Or like well, pre uninherited. Like, well, because he was under the impression he was gonna be the Prince of Dorne this whole time. Like, yeah, come into that, and then he got um. No, instead you're gonna become King of Westeros to this like Queen with Dragons. Mm-hmm. So obviously more of a consort kind of thing. Yeah, and he he never thinks about it. Not once. He's just yeah. like, oh God, I have to flirt with the girl. <laughs> yeah. So like, I don't. I always got the impression that he was just like really, really relieved. <laughs> Like okay, I don't. Great. Have, I don't have to be the prince anymore. <laughs> I can party play at a King's Landing. Yeah. 
So that's what a King concert would do, right? Yeah, sure. Okay. Because there's no such thing as sexism. A King concert would be just like a Queen concert. Mm-hmm. I'm kidding. Uh, uh, leadership Sam got it thrust upon him too, where he has yeah. to. All he's doing is leading a boat, but it goes horribly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he and he, he really he really steps up. He does. You know, he, get, he gets them to Old Town. Yeah, eventually. <laughs> but, no but like even like feet. stuff like he's like yeah I will work my way like I will earn my keep on this ship on the way to Old Town and he does it yeah it's cause he's fucking strong in the real way yeah like he, he does what needs to be done yes yeah Sam is a very brave person there we go he's my boyfriend <laughs> Um, does Ariane think about leadership ever? <laughs> That's cute. Okay. <laughs> You're so cute all of a sudden. Um, I'm always cute, like when I didn't know where the Mississippi was. <laughs> Those dorbs. Very. Well, like, yeah, well, her, her whole entire thing basically is, like, her trying to talk herself into the fact that she doesn't think she's a complete fuck up, but she does. So, and that she has a right to something that she clearly would have a right to. Yeah, but it was never in danger. She thinks about leadership a lot. Yeah, and then she also thinks about what quality am I possibly lacking? That like, like what's wrong with me? Yeah. Oh my girl. Oh my heart is hurting. <laughs> no, but like the thing is, like, like she, she, like, kind of, like, she has this projection of herself. As, like, this confident leader. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, like, what she tries to convince herself of, right? Yeah. She's and, Like, that's what the Queenmaker chapter is. Her being like, yeah, I'm totally up for this. I can totally do this. I'm great. Yeah. But, like, you can tell she doesn't actually think that about herself at any point. No. No, <laughs> yeah. not at all. <laughs> so. And she's so hard on herself, too. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't, yeah, she's so riddled with anxiety. Hey, Bubblegum has a similar arc. Um... <laughs> When she quits. Yeah. Um, personal and political and leadership. Theon, not really. Mm-mm. Jamie. Jamie, yes. Mm-hmm. Like, not subtly at all. He even thinks that to, about, like, oh, Tywin would be proud of me at one point for something that Tywin totally would not have been proud of. <laughs> the whole trebuchet thing? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess it was effective. Yeah, it worked. Yeah, but... Yeah, no, Jamie, Jamie very much thinks about, like, he's also, you know, the head of the King's Guard. Mm-hmm. So he is in a position of leadership. He has to think about this shit. Yeah. Um, Brienne, not really. No. Like, she leads, she leads her own peeps, but that's about it. <laughs> Ironborn is all about this, right? Yeah. Definitely. With Vic, well, Vic and Asha both trying to become king. Yeah. Queen, whatever, ruler. And, you know, Vic, Vic does think about, like, duty a lot in that, like, he can't commit kinslaying and stuff. And and then Aaron's just kind of wild-carding. <laughs> yeah. We talk we talk a lot more Being about Being a wet blanket. <laughs> aforementioned Greyjoy podcast. Mm-hmm. Where we just go on and on about this. Um, <laughs> the wet blankets. <laughs> yeah, that'll be fun. And then Danny and John basically, like, are this theme. Yeah, so I think we said I think we said that at the beginning. Yeah, and of course Cersei is you, you know you get the intimate exploration of leadership. She doesn't. Yeah, and I the think whole like with, how the personal stuff kind of intrudes on the political stuff sometimes. <laughs> well, that's another theme. Was that your attempt at a segue? 
I thought we were more or less already talking about that. I guess it's true. But with Cersei, the thing, the thing about Cersei I want to say is I think she's the example of what happens when you don't make any moral concessions. And you're just like, my way all the time. Yeah, that's true. Because she, she's like completely the opposite of- Yeah, but her morals suck so much, you know? <laughs> exactly, that's what I'm saying. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, so she's like a special case of like, it's particularly hellish. Yeah. Because like, I think like, you know, if, if Danny made no moral concessions, I think. <laughs> No. It'd be Does a little. Cersei make any concession to be remotely political? Maybe with the arming of the faith, but yeah. Well, that was bad. just well. That like she thought she was being so clever, <laughs> pulling one over yeah. on them. <laughs> um. Oh my god. Oh, I love her though. Yeah, like no, she really doesn't. Um. There. Yeah. I think there are a couple of like very small things she's out like, like with the Tommen's wedding. She makes a few concessions, but. She spends the entire chapter bitching about it, so I'm not sure if that counts. Yeah, I guess leadership is all about the intersection of the personal and political, but I was mm-hmm. thinking that was more like um all the Starks not being able to give up being Starks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, and, and like Asha kind of like, you know, she knows that this whole thing is kind of stupid and she really doesn't have a chance, but she can't like, because of her identity, she's like, I can't not make a claim at this kid's mo- king's moot. It's just not possible. Wait. Wait, this is ridiculous, because the other theme is futility. (laughs) (laughs) They're all intertwined. Can these themes stop intersecting with each other and Mm -hmm. being so fucking, like, cohesive? And Stop it, Martin. Stop it. No, really, those are our our last two themes that we pulled at. The intersection of the personal and political, and that's what we think A Song of Ice and Fire is largely about. Renly uh, versus Stannis. Think about that. Like, the the personal versus the political and, and how... How that influences it. Um, Ariane is maybe, I mean, I think she's the best example for this. Yeah, or like. I know you, I know we use her as an example too much, but. <laughs> no, just this whole thing where you have, like, basically because of, like, the feudal system and, the, like, the commentary on it that Martin is trying to make and, like, the glorification of it. It's just, like. The glorification within the, te- like, it, the text does not glorify the no. feudal system. But the like the genre, the genre does, and the, like the Watsonian society within the genre does, right? Right, right. Um, but it's it's like if anything, it's a commentary on how inherently unstable and untenable the system is. Yeah, but but just like you know, you have these very personal things that turn into political things that end up in like involving millions of people because like these two brothers couldn't get along, you know? <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And um, you know, you know, John Con. I don't want to shortchange John Con. He actually is a great intersection of the personal and the political because he has these political aims and it would be the best for everyone if he lopped his fucking hand off or if he was like, hey, I have grayscale, I'm going to sit out. But yeah. it's his it's his personal that's motivating him to still be there, to see that, to see Rhaegar's son be on the front throne. Yeah. And like the, the Dornish Theater is also, it kind of also very explicitly does this whole thing where you have you have something that is essentially very personal but all these people are using political like kind of a mask of political motivation yes to to screen this this what is essentially a very personal thing and even like the larger theater with the whole thing with with the tar- with this attempted targaryen restoration is also essentially a very personal thing yes i would agree with that yeah but then but then like but in the Dornish theater, you also have this whole thing where everything they do is for the nation state. So, you know, uh, it comes back around on itself. 
With Sansa, what's really interesting is that she's not, like, mm-hmm. an active participant in the politics yet, but it's certainly her reaction and how she's navigating, she's taking it in sort of as an intrigue sort of, well, I'm here, I might as well learn. Yeah. But I think, like, her personal, where she, like you said, she just kind of takes over the eerie, she makes these friendships. Yeah. Like, that's what's going to be guiding the court. Like, But also, like, she spent the first three books kind of, like, as an object of this whole thing. Yes. Right. And then she kind of becomes the kind of active observer. That's the phrase I use, right? That she's an active observer. Yeah. Correct. And now like, there is a distinction. We promise. Yeah. Well, like, like at first, at first, like she's very, you know, she's an 11 year old girl basically. And she acts like an 11 year old girl would. Um, She's always involved in the pol- in the political stuff because, like, she's being used basically as you know a, a baseball card, um, right? But like, her, as you know, her characterization develops. She becomes like she just becomes more and more aware of the political nature of everything going around on around her in a very kind of like she starts to figure things out, right? Yes, correct. She no longer interprets everything as like very personal anymore. Correct, and I think moving forward, like. Mm-hmm. she has that sort of cynicism that's been building and she's really not just going to be little figures. Puppet. If you think about like in uh, a game of Thrones where she's told that like, you know, um, your father is a traitor and your marriage to Joffrey is in peril right now. She's like thinking about like the consequences for herself and her family. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is reasonable, but, but like, but as the story progresses, she's thinking more in larger terms of everything. So, now she's thinking about the entire veil, about, you know, how this relates to, you know, the politics and the rest of the Seven Kingdoms and everything like that. And that's definitely part of her development, too, where things are moving kind of, like, her her mind is thinking in a bigger sphere. Now I want to do a sense episode. <laughs> that will happen, too. But, like, it's almost like she's moving along a continuum from purely personal to purely political, right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And it's just going to be interesting to see how those two like work together mm-hmm. moving forward because I don't think she, I don't think she'll ever. She's not the type of person to ever take herself completely out of the equation. No, because like she is intrinsically a person with a lot of political capital to her. Yeah, and she's also like a good person. Yeah, as trite as that might sound, and um, she's she's very like she's becoming very good at what she does. She really is not. Personal political, yeah, we touched on Ironborn. Yeah, we kind of touched on a lot of this. I guess not to belabor the point, but futility is a major, major theme of these two books, too. And maybe- Futility and failure. Yeah. And, like, maybe to people's credit, this is where some of the fandom, like, oh my god, this is so sluggish to get through, because- Yeah, it's like Harry Potter 5. A lot of it, well, you know, there's the dramatic futility of Brienne's quest, which I- understand why that's frustrating i do and it was certainly a little bit frustrating for me on the first time but once once you can divorce yourself from plot expectations and go back and really look at what they're going for like yeah she's on a feudal quest but look at what she's discovering about herself along Mm -hmm. the way and it becomes it just kind of like opens this up i agree so then you have like um literal futile quests with Quentin. Yes. Where it just like, like the first line of his arc is adventure stinks. (laughs) 
know, we'd laugh about it. But like, you kind of know from the very beginning that this quest is doomed. Um, Arya knows the Queen's Maker is not, (laughs) yeah, the best, the best laid plan in the world. Uh, I would say, yeah, the Ironborn Asha very much about the futility of her position. She knew she she knew she wasn't going to get elected. Yeah, definitely. Like by her, by like you know. The end of the, like by the time the Kingsman starts, she definitely definitely knows, and she pretty much knew it before that too. Yeah, she's thinking about it. She's just kind of like, well, I gotta do it. I'm sorry, and yeah, the, and there's like kind of like this sense of doom, I think, in a lot of plot lines. Uh, like John Con, well, mm-hmm. he's dying, so yeah, yeah, that 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 will do it. <laughs> um, Barry, mm-hmm. for sure, Theon. Theon, Theon's major exercise in futility in, in some ways with, um, all he wants to do is fucking, like, die in a dignified way, or, like, you know, how am I supposed to help Jane? I can't do anything. Yeah. I can't even fucking hold a knife right. This helplessness is more, I think. And just, like, like, yeah. the best he can expect is, like, you know, to die without pain. You know, that's kind yeah. of his whole thing. It's pretty he dark, man. That. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's very dark. I'm trying to reconcile Mel into all of this. I mean, she's making herself believe in someone false. So it's very well, like, she's, she's kind of like, uh, Brienne like in the whole futility because we know that a lot of her interpretations are wrong. Like, we the reader. But, right. So it's a, it's a dramatic futility mm-hmm. again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're just like, oh God, Mel, just stop. <laughs> you don't have psychic powers. But, you know, I think, Bri- Brienne's not an idiot. No. Like, she has that breakdown where she's like, this is why I have to keep going. Mm-hmm. But I think she knows it's very, it's a long shot. Well, like, she's she's decided basically that, like, honor is more important, right? And and I suppose, like, she, if she thinks she doesn't have a place in the world, she's just like, well, I might as well do this. And it's it's worth something because, like, I'm living up to these ideals that I value so much. Exactly. Like, like even, like, like, there's this one thing that I think is, sorry. No, There's no. this one thing that I think is really interesting. Like, I've, it's, it's kind of related to the whole how Quentin never thinks about how he lost the chance to be the Prince of Dorne. Where, uh, what's his face? The guy who keeps hitting on her. Uh, drawing a blank. Um, the guy who she's uh, traveling with who keeps hitting on her. Hyle. Hyle Hunt. Yeah, Sir Hyle Hunt. How he's talking about, like, how, oh, I should marry you because then you're going to inherit your father's seat and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, no, no, that's not going to happen because, like, my father can still remarry and have a son. And you're just like, yeah, you've never really thought about the consequences of you potentially inheriting Tarth. Like this never occurred to you. You don't think about it ever. And no, apparently she doesn't because she just doesn't see herself like in the world that way. Yeah. That so, is fascinating. I thought that was interesting. It is. Yeah. Um, she never I'm thinks of herself as the heir to Tarth, which is what she is. So, well, Tarth confuses me. It Taos Tarth on Tarth. What's going on? <laughs> no, the Lord of Tarth seems to be called the Even Star. That seems to be his title. What I'm, is this? I'm guessing What's they have like Elvish? kind of like like a weird like kind of separate like distinct culture on Tarth. It's a weird place. I mean, it's a pretty large island, so they prep. They definitely could have their own culture. It's like the size of Sicily, at least. I want to see Tarth. Yeah, it's fucking weird. So I guess, like, after going all through all this, like, hopefully we at least were able to show you how this is very thematically cohesive and mm-hmm. dense. Like, the 
again, we, we kind of just pick the four themes that interest us and then we think about a lot, but there's mm-hmm. more. There's always more. Um, but the literary merit of these books, but I, I guess to, like, the themes we picked out are like futility and like a <laughs> uh, stinking corpse of Westeros. So this kind of seems very grim. Why it's- is it that? Why is it that you find yourself so drawn to this? Well, it is very grim, but it's... Well, like, the thing about Martin is that, like, you know, which really distinguishes it from uh something else, is is that, like, you have all this horrible stuff happening. You have this, like, grimness. You have, like, you know, this extremely weighty theme of just, like, people just you know, feasting on this corpse that they created. You You still have, like, that kind of very genuine goodness of humanity throughout it all and you you still have yeah. like you know people helping each other and caring about each other and loving each other yeah and you know i think i think part of the genius of his close pov too is that mm-hmm. it's very difficult to not emphasize with everyone on some level empathize i said empathize he said emphasize did i it was cute no, but like even like like um like people's like motivations, like you know, they don't they don't come from a nihilistic place. I mean, there are a few exceptions, I suppose. They don't come from this place of just <laughs> just like darkness, like your aunt. Yeah, or, or or like even Cersei, like you can't like really, like you know, the place where she comes from isn't like the best of human nature. But like even like you know somebody like John Con, who's clearly doing this because you know he loves he loves Rhaegar, and you know he loves Young Griff in a completely different way. Um, and he and he has guilt. Yeah. For, uh... You know, you know the stupid, um, how well do you deal with losing your hand on a scale of Jamie Lannister to Luke Skywalker, those things. And I kept comparing Jamie Lannister and Luke Skywalker. Yeah. I feel like Griff and Littlefinger is good. Like, how much do you project and creep on to the child <laughs> of your, your teenage crush? Yeah. <laughs> on a scale of John Con to Littlefinger. Yeah. Um, but what, what I'm trying to say is that, like, people, like, um, like, you know, that's kind of the difference between Game of Thrones, like, as I'm dancing around in Song of Ice and Fire, is that, like, people in Game of Thrones, their motivation is always kind of base. You know, it's always revenge. ambition, rebe- revenge, power. But in A Song of Ice and Fire, people's motivations are, like, doing the right thing. And love. And, you know, trying to make it right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I think that, that that's, that's why it's not, even though it's dark, it's not, it's not bleak and it's not nihilistic. No, you really care about these characters that happen to be mm-hmm. in a setting that causes a lot of pain. And that's, mm-hmm. it's tragic to read in sometimes, but you also genuinely care. And- oh, like, yeah, like, even, like, we've talked about how, like, um, you know, the worst POV character is probably the prologue character from Story Restores. And he's a horrible person, but you do empathize with him. Yeah. And, like, you know, Pate from, uh, the epilogue to the prologue to a uh, piece for crows is prologue, also like, yeah. he's kind of like that. You're just like, dude, you're kind of just a dick, but you do like, I think I empathize with him less than I empathize with Chet actually. But, um, you know, you do kind of like feel his kind of, he's just, he feels very trapped in this system. You know, he's just like, I suck at this whole maester thing, but what else is there to do? What are my prospects? I'm just like, you know, this kid from the sticks. I need to and, buy, I need to buy the love of my life. Yeah, and maybe we can get a donkey. Maybe I can cut hair for the rest of my life. And you're just like, dude, your life sucks. I'm sorry. 
even Vic, like, I mean, Vic mm-hmm. is, he's special. He's Victorian. But, you know, this is what, this is how he thinks he has to behave in the culture. He sees himself mm-hmm. trapped. And I would call his quest to get Danny futile. I guess he wouldn't. <laughs> No, obviously, obviously, how it's going to work is that he's going to get Danny and she's going to be a salt wife. I just don't understand. Um, there, there are people, like, dear listeners, there are people on the internet who think that. Oh my god, not a, not an insignificant number. We've debated them a few times. Mm-hmm. It's really weird. Yeah. There's, yeah. Danny's going to be into this. Mm-hmm. Oh. But you you always like at least see where he's coming from or where and and yeah it's just uh i'd say if you read a feast for curse of dance with dragons and you didn't like them read it again you don't have to read yeah. you don't have to read the first three again i do recommend that for sure but feast dance rewards a reread in a way i think the others just don't quite match yeah I think, like, at, at this point, the author knew that this was a series that is being reread. Yeah. And so that definitely played into the way that he wrote it. And there's just so many layers. We could do an entire podcast about parallels and foils. Mm-hmm. Just very, like, the the intricacy of how some of these work is ridiculous, especially Arya and Sansa or John and Danny. It's mm-hmm. crazy how much they parallel each other. Yeah. Um Jamie paralleling Brienne, Jamie paralleling Tyrion to some extent. Yeah, Cersei paralleling Danny. Mm-hmm. Contrasting. Yeah, we can. And, we can- and Davos, Davos, and Barry is one we just kind of discovered magically tonight. Even though I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen it before, but they're definitely parallels. It's getting a little hard for me to reconcile Bran into it. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of sad to admit. Because I, I really do like him, and I really do like his last chapter, and I'm ex- I'm so excited mm-hmm. to see what happens. But we could probably parallel him to Mel if we really tried. That's true. We'll work on that. We'll work on it and get back <laughs> to you. Exactly. It doesn't have to be your favorite these these two books, but I think I think it's at least very hard to deny the literary merit. Mm-hmm. Is what I would say. So hopefully you can at least appreciate it, even if not enjoying it. Exactly. Although, I think that you can do both. I think you can too. I very recommend, very much recommend a reread. Start with just one plot line too. Mm-hmm. Have no, start with Dorn. <laughs> treat yourself. Now, if you, if you start with anything, you should do, uh, Cersei, I think. Yeah, like, I, no, in all, I totally agree. In all honesty. No, I agree with that. Maybe Brienne second. Um, if, yeah, if, maybe uh, do Cersei and Jamie at the same time, maybe, and then do Brienne. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how I recommend it if you want. Yeah, that. but Cer- Cersei for sure. You don't even have to do it with anyone else. She, she can mm-hmm. stand on her own. That is so yeah. rewarding, and and it's it just interesting. Like shit, I, I, Jamie doesn't stand up as well without Cersei though. So. I I agree with that. Yeah. What what I did was Cersei, and then I did Jamie and Bran together. But whatever. <laughs> yeah, you can do that. There's no one right way to read A Feast for Crows. No, and it gets exciting, because then on your third or fourth time through, you can find a different path. Yeah. <laughs> it's like your very own thematic choose-your-own-adventure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if you also want to do... Like, Quentin was very contained 
even just mm-hmm. like little things like that. Just take take Davos's chapter. Actually, I've never done it, but just take Davos's no. chapter, see what you can come up with, and I think I think that just makes it so fun in a way that it wasn't maybe the first yeah. time. It, it's just I don't know. Like reading is cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I learned from this. But I I think yeah, definitely once you can divorce yourself from any plot expectations, it's just mm-hmm. uh these books. We like them. We like them so much we'll talk about them with no sleep in our system. Okay, so we're going to uh, sign off because Kylie needs to sleep. No, I don't. <laughs> you need to sleep. I, I have no idea what my child is doing at this point. Oh, okay. So, well, yeah. I should go. take care of that. You should sleep. You have to work tomorrow. I okay. probably do too. Let us in all honesty know <laughs> if you would listen to a Doran Ariane episode. If not, or if you just have another suggestion or whatever. Yeah. Um, I didn't tell you our Tumblrs again. Damn it. Uh, drop by our Tumblr inboxes. I am GOT Gifts and Musings. And Julia is the cultural vacuum. In the meantime, yep. we will be blogging and then also writing on our website, fandomfollowing.com. And I don't know when this is getting released, but if season six is out, then that's where we're going to have a lot of our Game of Thrones content. Like, almost yeah. all. So. We won't be talking about Game of Thrones on this podcast until the season is over. Yeah, so. well, not not if we can help it. <laughs> That's what yeah. I'm assuming. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Good night, everyone. Good night. No, truthfully, he is like the my type that I would date. <laughs> I just, He's definitely not my type. I know. Uh, who would I, I go for? I I would probably uh, you go Garrus. I de- well, I would like fuck Garrus. I'm not sure if I'd have a relationship with him. Well, he's an uh, asshole. Yeah, but like he's he's the right kind of asshole. I don't think I would have a relationship with any of these people. Oberon. He's not a POV character. I would definitely have a relationship with him. Uh, no, um, so if I had a data POV character, it would be Sam in a heartbeat. Yeah. Um, uh, no, it would be Ariane. What am I even talking about? Well, okay. Uh, no, she's I actually would... kind of high maintenance. Uh, well, And yeah. I'd get kicked to the curb for her job. You just have to accept that you don't matter at all and you'll be fine. Um, I think I would probably date Jamie. Yeah, he's not a bad choice. Yeah.